And good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, whatever the case may be. Welcome to the other side of midnight, a night when, obviously, electronic gremlins are out stalking around in the dark in the land of enchantment. Sorry for that kind of uh, ragged opening. Well, tonight's show is going to be rather extraordinary, and it's been very specifically chosen to be a companion with last night's show. And I'm going to put all of you in the picture in a few minutes, but I want to open tonight with a very important request. A very good friend of ours personally and of the show and of Kinthea and myself and uh, Keith um, has fallen very ill. Um, Joseph Farrell, who runs the website called the Giza Death Star. I never quite understood why he called his website the Giza Death Star. I mean, I've read the book and I know all that, but it's kind of a strange take. Anyway, um, uh, last night, kind of in the middle of everything, I got an email from one of our mutual friends that Joseph had had a heart attack. And uh, it's one of those things where you're really taken aback because he's much too young to have gone through what I went through 20 plus years before. And so what I want to do is I want to send everybody to an update in Joseph's own word. He survived. Uh, According to the doctors, he had given his medical situation, his overall condition, he had about a 12% chance, kind of like I did, of surviving. He has. He is um, in the hospital. He had open heart surgery. They put in, I believe they put in a stent um, prior to doing some other things. He's in the hospital. Um, He is in very, very serious condition. Um, And I want to tell you a little story because when this befell me 20 plus years ago, I had an angel who, who had appeared in my life. Her name was Robin, and she literally saved my life. And one of the things that she did was to get me after the surgery, after I'd spent about a week in intensive care and then in the hospital room and you know, they get you up and they walk you right away so that you, you know, don't languish in bed and you continue with muscle tone and all that. Exercise is one of the medicines that is prescribed these days. Um, one of the things she was able to do is to get me into a program called hyperbaric medicine. And this is something that's critical for everyone who's listening out there. If you or someone you love, a parent, an elderly relative, uh, even sometimes not so elderly people, if you have a stroke or you have a heart attack and you're in recovery, you need to look for a website called ACAM, which is literally uh, the American College for Hyperbaric Medicine. Keep that in mind, A-C-H-M. Find that website. It will give you everything you need to know about a hyperbaric treatment. Now, for some of you, you may be familiar with this term associated with Michael Jackson and the idea that he slept in a hyperbaric chamber every night. Well, kind of put that all aside, you know, regardless of how Jackson used this modality. If you have a stroke, 
or you have, God forbid, a heart attack. You need to find, you actually need to do it before the worst case scenario, the nearest hyperbaric chamber in your location, in your city, in your neighborhood, in your region. A lot of hospitals now uh, have them. They were, they were very scarce 20 plus years ago when I had mine. But Robin found a facility and got me into it. And I had sessions, I'm trying to remember, it was either two or three times per week. And what they would do is they would take me in and you would lie down in this chamber and they basically pump it full of oxygen at um, slightly elevated uh, pressures to normal uh, 14.7 PSI atmospheric pressure at sea level. And you just lie there for an hour or so. And you do it like like homeopathy. You do it periodically, like two or three times a week. For Joseph, who has been suffering from oxygen deprivation because of this chronic deteriorating you know, heart condition for years, it turns out, uh, he radically needs it. And uh, so if you're friends with Joseph, you need to all send him email. I sent him, you know, I tried to talk to him. He says he's too weak to talk on the phone. And for Joseph to be too weak to talk on the phone or to talk at all is, you know, it tells you how serious this condition is. For all you supporters and friends of Dr. Farrell out there, you need to send him an email and recommend strongly, urgently, strenuously that he get into a hyperbaric treatment facility as soon as possible. The earlier you get there, the earlier its extraordinary, literally transformative effects can take hold in terms of your overall body metabolism, in terms of your chemistry, your stress levels, et cetera, et cetera. It's basically hypersaturation of the body's cells with oxygen at a partial pressure that's equivalent to 14.7 PSI at sea level. And as you know, the atmosphere normally is only about 20%. So if you do that, I am living proof almost a quarter of a century later, it has a stunning, remarkably positive effect. Um, Before I went to Miami and before I met Robin and before I had the heart attack uh, 20 plus years ago, I lived here in New Mexico, uh, actually here in Placidas at about 6,500 feet above sea level. And if you're at an altitude like over a mile high, which we are here, the partial pressure of oxygen is much less than it is at sea level. Just ordinary, you know, physics. I really doubted, given what the doctors were saying, that I would ever be able to return home, that I would be able to return to New Mexico or certainly live at this altitude um, because of the fact that my body, my cells were starved for oxygen. And uh, uh, the way Robin described the doctors describing the status of my heart and the very, very low uh, ejection fraction, which is basically a measure of the efficiency of the heart pumping blood and all that, it was extraordinarily dismal. The prognosis was very, very grim. So she got me into this hyperbaric program. 
back in, in Florida because I had the heart attack in, in Miami. And within weeks, I was doing everything I had done before. My energy level was back. And obviously, they don't, you know, stick something into you to look at your heart. But I know that when I came back to New Mexico and was able to walk and hike and chop wood, and I have not had a twinge in 20 plus, it's almost 25 now, years. This was 1999 when I had the heart attack. So uh, I strongly am recommending, and I wasn't able to do it over the phone. I had to do it in email, and obviously you can't be as persuasive in email as uh, you can be when you're talking to someone directly. So for all your, your colleagues out there, all the friends of Joseph, all the people who have followed his extraordinary research, which if you've been following our own research vis-a-vis the communications and the muamua and all that and ancient sacred sites, particularly the Giza Plateau, you know that it's much too soon to lose him. Now's when we need him more than ever. So send him emails. Have your friends send him emails recommending the hyperbaric treatments through ACAMP. And ACAMP people are incredibly helpful they want to provide this extraordinary new window on, on medical science, which is very overlooked by most of the mainstream medical community. It's more pervasive than it used to be, but it's still not, is not, it's, it's still not widespread. It's still not something that your average doctor thinks of when someone has a stroke or a heart attack. So as a post-op recovery procedure, cannot recommend it highly enough. You need to communicate to Joseph that regardless of what his, doc, his doctor says, because his doctor may be totally ignorant of this, this option, this opportunity, this extraordinary breakthrough, which is so unsung, not many doctors realize it's a stunning breakthrough. Um, it's used for wound healing. And when you have, you know, heart surgery, that's a wound. Uh, you know, you don't do anything inside the body without creating scar tissue and all the things that come along. So hyperbaric treatments, hyper meaning beyond, baric for like barometer, pressure, hyper pressure, pure oxygen in what looks kind of like an old um, uh, um, artificial lung, uh, what they used to use for polio, except you don't have your head sticking out of it. You're in the entire chamber for about an hour. You can read. You can play with your phone, which most people do. Um, you can watch television, which most people do, and then they fall asleep. <laughs> anyway, that's what Joseph needs. And there are other people out there who have gone through heart procedures recently who also need it. Hint, hint. And if um, my example is not enough, just go to the Hyperbaric ACAM website and start reading patient testimonials. You will be amazed moving on um last night we announced on the show that the web deployment had reached a milestone on the 14th tetrahedral day which was yesterday they have deployed all the major elements of this extraordinarily complicated extraordinarily expensive 10 billion dollars and uh, counting uh extraordinary telescope called the james webb Space Telescope, 
which is on its way at a slow speed of about two-tenths of a mile per second. I misquoted the actual number last night trying to do the calculation in my head, but I, I was distracted. You guys, you know, I was distracted. So it will arrive at the end of the month at the L2 position. They will fire thrusters a few days before it gets there, so it kind of slows down gently and then goes into this very large halo orbit around the so-called L2 point, located about a million miles behind the Earth, away from the sun. And it will function there according to their onboard fuel, and that's not taking into account the idea of visiting it with a future spacecraft. Elon, are you listening? And refueling the onboard fuel. But they think they have enough fuel uh, even at present for about 20 years, a generation of stunning breakthrough operation as this incredible, very complicated, very elaborately gold-plated, literally gold-plated telescope uh, orbits in a halo orbit around the L2 point and explores every conceivable facet at the cutting edge of modern astrophysics, planetary science, and last but not least, delves into the question, who the heck are we? And are we alone in the universe, in the cosmos? Well, as you know, if you've been following our own work here at the Enterprise Mission for the last month or so, um, apparently we are not. And someone has been responding to our experiment, and we'll get into that shortly. Item number three is a kind of a, a sequenced item number two. This is the NASA website. Basically, where is the telescope? Where is Webb? Um, and actually, Webb should have a double B. Oh, we've made a mistake there. That needs to be corrected. James Webb, two Bs. Anyway, if you click on that, um, either on the link or on the graphic, it takes you to a brilliantly interesting but very simple uh, website which shows you in graphic form where the Webb telescope is tonight as it's making its way at two-tenths of a mile per second toward the L2 point. It shows its full deployment. Now, of course, uh, what's left is aligning all the mirrors, testing all the uh, uh, experiments. There are four major experiments, basically cameras, uh, looking at spectroscopy, uh, looking at imaging, infrared, and, uh, you know, related uh, uh, analysis technologies uh, on the spacecraft and they have to wait for several weeks as the um, spacecraft and the telescope itself gets colder and colder behind this tennis court sized five layer sun shield that they were able to deploy by remote control when the spacecraft was about a half a million miles away from Earth again moving to the million mile point uh, at the L2 position. Item number four. Now, this one is so weird because, as you know from listening to this show over the last month, we're making some really remarkable strides in ascertaining if there's anybody out there. We've gotten some remarkable results, which I'll go through momentarily for those of you who are new to the show. And in particular, it's kind of like an on-air briefing for my guest tonight who had not heard of what we were doing and probably does not realize that I asked him to be a guest 
specifically because his area of expertise fits perfectly into the bigger question, who the heck are we talking to? And if they tell us something really astonishing and weird and highly controversial, should we believe them? And that's going to be part and parcel of the conversation for the rest of the evening. Anyway, into all this, remember about a month ago, um, referring to item number four in Radio with Pictures, remember um, that the Chinese had announced that their little, you know, second U-2 rover, uh, U-2 in Chinese means Jade Rabbit, which is, of course, the um, uh, symbolic pet companion um, research assistant um, familiar of the Chinese goddess of the moon, Chang. Anyway, they sent Chang 3, uh, which was the first lander by the Chinese, to the front side of the moon, meaning the side of the moon that is aimed toward the Earth all the time. They sent Chang 4 uh, a couple of years ago to the far side of the moon, uh, opposite, it turns out, literally, uh, if you draw a line right through the core of the moon, to where Chang 3 was landed in Mari Imbrium, which is in the kind of upper left-hand corner of the moon if you look at the full moon as it's rising some night. Um, and Chang 3, uh, I'm sorry, Chang 4's U-2-2, Jade Rabbit 2, has been trundling around as a little rover flooring the far side in this crater uh, on the far side of the moon. Uh, thank you, thank you. Webb suddenly got its right B. Um, it's been trundling around, taking very interesting imagery um, and doing analyses of the rocks and soil and whatever. Well, about a month ago, the Chinese published through their uh, government news agencies and uh, their government space program, which is kind of like the Chinese version of NASA, a very peculiar picture which showed what looked to be like a little cubic thingy on the horizon, which we were told from the Chinese, was located about 260 feet away from the rover. And they actually even had a, had a name for it, which the Western press mangled terribly. They called it, you know, a, a, a mystery hut. Whereas Robert Morningstar, who is one of our colleagues in this uh, Confederation of Enterprise Associates and Fellows and Researchers and and just kind of like, you know, friends. Um, he knows Mandarin, so he gave the correct translation. Apparently, the Chinese themselves called call this little cubic thing on the horizon God's secret little house, which has all kinds of fascinating um, symbolic, ritual, and even theological overtones. Like, who could the Chinese be calling God on the moon with a little house that's supposed to be a secret? Anyway, we were told in that initial press release that it would take them several days to get there. And when I quickly read the release, I kind of, you know, as everybody else did apparently, mistook that for several Earth days. No, 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 no. The Chinese meant several lunar days. And as you may know or would remember, each lunar day is two Earth weeks long. So they said they would take several days to get there, several lunar days, so several months to get there. Well, apparently, 
according to the Chinese, a couple of days ago on Friday, they're there. They they moved the little rover at breakneck speed. You know, warp nine comes to mind. Uh, up that hill to look down on, as you'll see if you click on item number four, uh, God's secret little house, and it turns out to be, wait for it, a bunny rabbit-shaped rock. Needless to say, and I've been saying this to all my colleagues kind of over the last couple of days, I think the story is a total fake. I mean, talk about fake news. From the Chinese Communist Party, I think this was some, as Ron Gerbron um, said elegantly you know, yesterday, some Chinese communist apparatchik, which is a term that derives from the old Soviet Communist Party, obviously kind of got caught up with where the Chinese rover mission was and said, well, we're going to put an end to this nonsense now and just put out a story and just had them pick a photo and put it out there and claim it was God's secret little house. The angles don't match. The distances don't match. The lighting doesn't match. In other words, nothing about this story rings true except that it's from the Chinese Communist Party and not from scientists involved in the mission. And we know from other reports having to do with a Chinese mission currently on Mars that there have been such dissension within the um, teams running uh, that mission that at one point they literally came to fistfight blows. They literally started attacking each other over some major element of, quote, scientific policy regarding the Chinese Zurong mission rover to the surface of the planet Mars. So is it beyond the realm that uh, the politics have radically in, intruded into the ultimate solution of the mystery of God's little secret house on the far side of the moon? Because frankly, if you look at the two photos, the initial release photo, and then what they're claiming is the, the rabbit kind of resembled rock, they don't resemble each other really at all, even allowing for the vastly increased resolution uh, because you're so much closer ostensibly in the latest uh, China release uh, from the mission. Be that as it may, this is all background to our conversation tonight with my guest, uh, Paul Wallace, who is the perfect person to talk about a bunch of things having to do with what we've been engaged in uh, for the last month. So for those who are new to the show, and for Paul, who I don't think has been following what we've been doing, let me give you a thumbnail sketch. About a month ago, a bunch of us thought it would be a really cool idea to send a radio signal through a private amateur ham radio operator's antenna in northern Arizona to this interstellar visitor that came zipping through the solar system back in 2017, named by NASA, Amuamua, which roughly translates first messenger from afar. Turns out from all the mainstream science that we have done, or they have done, and we've done our own separate analysis, this thing was a really genuine interstellar visitor, meaning it zipped down into the solar system from the direction of Lyra at about 33 degrees to the 
ecliptic, which is the Earth's orbit around the sun, made a sharp left-hand turn around the sun at 195,000 miles per hour. Anybody notice anything interesting about that number? And then zipped out of the solar system uh, at the same excess velocity at which it entered toward the constellation of Pegasus, never to return, meaning it was moving faster than, er than the sun's gravity could retain it in the solar system, even in a millions of years long, uh, very parabolic orbit. Okay, be that as it may, one of the weirdnesses of a Muamua, which got the mainstream attention, is it left faster than it arrived, which, of course, is impossible. Where did the energy come from? Initially, some folks said, oh, it's basically a comet, and the jetting action of ices melting and all that exposed to sunlight are giving it a kind of a action-reaction effect, and like other comets, which change orbits somewhat due to this jetting action, it was merely getting a boost from the volatilization of, of solid ices melting under brutal sunlight that close to the sun. Not because none of the high-power telescopes, including the Keck and the Sierra Tololo telescopes and the very large telescope in Chile and all the others around the world, none of them detected as much as a trace of gases or a cometary tail or gas emissions or what are called outgassing from the object. It appeared to be a cold, naked object, much more reflective, by the way, when the right calculations were done than any other natural object approaching the reflectivity of aluminum, like 90%. What natural object has 90% reflectivity in interstellar or interplanetary space? Answer, none. So the mainstream in person of uh, Dr. Abby Loeb at Harvard, who was then the director of the Harvard College Observatory, ventured in the mainstream press well after, months after we had ventured on this show based on our analysis of the numbers, that the Muamua, this first messenger arriving from afar, um, was artificial. And our model was it could be what's called a Bracewell probe, meaning a, 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 basically an AI sent from another star to kind of come through the solar system and listen to see if there was anybody here. Anybody who would develop radio. The problem with the Bracewell probe model is that as part of the model, uh, which was formulated by this engineer, Ronald Bracewell, back at Stanford in a paper in 1960, in order to trigger a Bracewell probe, it has to pick up active radio transmissions. And as far as we know, nobody bothered to send anything to a Muamua in the mainstream either the military or the Breakthrough Listen Project or any of those folks, none of them sent any messages to a Muamua to this messenger from afar as it made its passage through the solar system. And why not? Well, we don't know why not. And when we come back on the other side of this break, we will tell you the rest, as Paul Harvey used to say, of the story. You're on the other side of midnight. We're talking now about an interstellar 
communications project initiated by the Enterprise Mission and spearheaded by this show, The Other Side of Midnight, which is now encompassing a lot of people all around the world. And next Saturday, we're going to talk about Phase 2. Tonight, we're going to talk about what we got in response to our radio call to Oumuamua, because that's why, among other things, Paul Wallace is here. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. funny because I think, you know, I went through my crazy phase where I made mistakes before the internet and before social media and before any of this, whereas now you can't do that. There's no such thing. So what you're saying about black and white and what it does is it stops people expressing themselves. People are too frightened. It's like, you know, I want to say something, but if, what if I use the wrong term? But I remember a story a couple of years ago where Benedict Cumberbatch, who at the time was a darling in the media's eyes was complaining about the disparity between the treatment of um, black actors and of white actors. And, and he was sticking up and saying, you know, they're not getting paid as well. They're not getting the jobs that they should be getting. And they're being, there is no equality. But what he said was, there isn't equality for colored actors. Well, you've said colored there, Benedict. You can't do that. And so they went for him and he was vilified and he had to come out and do a big apology. Now, what it was, it was, it was a slip of the tongue. He's obviously not racist. He's actively trying to say that there is discrimination and he's trying to stick up for that community. But he was vilified and attacked. And that's what happens now. And so when people make their mistakes now, they make their mistakes on the internet. They make their mistakes on social media where they're screenshotted forever. And so... I think that's all part of the conditioning that people are frightened. You know, if you're in a position where I don't know what to say, I don't know what to say, in the end, you'll go, well, I won't say anything then. The fallout of this is going to be extraordinary with that because people don't realize, you know, when you, 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 you're phoning up the police and grassing on your neighbors and when all this ends, they're still going to be your neighbors and you're still going to have to live next door to them. And good luck with that. Hello everyone, my name's Gareth Ike. It's 
been a pleasure to talk on the other side of the news. Fantastic conversation with Kinthea, Timothy and Annetta. And I wish you all the best with a fantastic podcast. Welcome back, everyone, for this Sunday night, January 9th, 2022. It still feels funny to say that, 2022. And we're already nine days in. Anyway, um, let me recap. On December 4th, we began this extraordinary experiment in alien ET communication. Remember, I don't do UFOs. The Enterprise mission has never done UFOs, and that's a very long story. We have done extraterrestrial artifacts. We found on NASA imagery and Japanese imagery and Russian imagery and Chinese imagery of the moon uh, and of Mars, all kinds of ancient alien ruins, in, in, you know, illustrating overwhelmingly that we are not the first. That this solar system has been host to a myriad of previous high-tech and low-tech civilizations, particularly on Mars. But the mainstream does not, does not um, acknowledge that, uh, you know, any of this is real. So up until about a month ago, it was kind of our policy that we did not do UFOs. The interesting thing is that a major political development happening where UFOs now are kind of like IFOs because the Department of Defense, as part of the recent Authorization Act signed by the president, now has a specific, acknowledgeable, you know, responsible bureau, which is responsible for researching and reporting to the American people on UAPs, Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon, or UFOs. And obviously, some of them are, shall we say, knowns as opposed to unknowns. So it was against this backdrop that uh, I kind of thought to myself, well, maybe it's time that we you know, move into the 20, 21st century. Maybe it's time that we take a gander at something which is very mainstream, i.e. communicating with something maybe like a Bracewell probe or something resembling... Um, uh, my old friend Arthur C. Clarke's uh, brilliant series of novels, Rendezvous with Rama, which actually is much more like what a Muamua represented, an object coming out of the interstellar dark, zipping into the inner solar system, making a sharp left-hand turn, and then leaving, never to return, except, of course, when Rama, which, of course, I think a Muamua should have been named, when Rama came through the system, uh, in Arthur's novelization, human spaceflight had reached the technology level where humans could actually pursue it, rendezvous with it, and enter it and find out who had built it and where they may have come from. At least they had that potential. I'm not going to spoil the story because you really need to read it. All right? We don't have that level of technology yet. At least we don't have it in the public domain. There's lots and lots of clues that we have a secret space program 
which can account for, again, UFOs as, a, as they appear in the sky to ordinary civilians. And it's very hard now to know which is which, whether you're dealing with a secret space program which has control of gravity, whether the stuff appearing over the Nimitz and over the Roosevelt, these uh, aircraft carrier battle groups back in the 2014 uh, period, we're seeing and tracking on radar extraordinary vehicles doing extraordinary things that nothing on Earth that we know of in the mainstream can, can you know, in any way, shape, or form imitate, follow, uh, model, or duplicate. And that includes China, Iran, Russia, whatever, whatever. So the physics that I've been working with for the last 20-some years, hyperdimensional physics, as well as the data coming in, as well as the politics, the formation of an actual office under the Department of Defense to deal with these manifestations of a stunning technology, they all say that this could be ours, but it probably is not because our stuff would not be used this way. So that leads up to what happened when we began transmitting on the night of December 4th and then every weekend thereafter through the Christmas weekend because we got answers. We now have hours and hours and hours of recorded answers on radio frequencies corresponding to 144.1 megahertz and 432 megahertz. And we have them recorded both in analog form and in digital form. And we're, as you heard last night in our latest analyses that we presented to the public, we're cracking the codes. There are all kinds of numbers. There's all kinds of references to our own terrestrial history from someone and we don't know it's Muamua because the signals did not come back from Muamua they literally arrived within minutes of the beginning of the broadcast and they included a sequence of actual physical UFOs or UAPs or something some kind of craft right over the antenna photobombing the antenna literally in front of a Muamua two and a half billion miles beyond in the dark against the stars. Um, so they could not be mistaken for anything else but intruders popping in and out of three-dimensional reality, not traversing across the sky, but literally appearing and disappearing. And when you zoom in on them, as we have presented video showing this in the last several weeks, they are structured geometric objects. They are vehicles. They are craft. They are three-dimensional solid something they're not just points of light in the sky so the enormous huge question which is before the house tonight and specifically before our very special guest paul anthony wallace is simply this who the heck are we talking to and what should we believe in terms of the answers so far that we have gotten. Let me give you a little background. Paul Wallace is a researcher, a speaker, an author of many books on the subject of spirituality and mysticism. He researches the world's mythologies for how they speak to our origins as a species and of our potential today as developing human. In the 80s and 90s, Paul's work centered on establishing foundations 
for new faith communities. And over the last 20 years, he's designed and delivered training for church ministers in the United Kingdom and Australia. In Australia, Paul has lectured on the history of religious thought and hermeneutics, the principles of interpreting text, including the Bible. He has served as the Anglican Church uh, Archdeacon in the Australian Capital Territory, and currently he provides personal coaching to clients in leadership and as a practitioner of healing in the Christian tradition. He is also, and this is very synchronistic, a musician, a storyteller, an author, a mentor, a conscious breather, and a barefoot walker. So, Paul Wallace, come on down. You're on the other side of midnight. G'day, Richard. Thank you so much for having me on your show today. Well, did you get an earful? <laughs> that was quite an introduction. There's a lot going on. Yes. And you're the perfect guy I wanted on tonight to talk about it because you quoted to me something from, I think it was, uh, was it the Old or the New Testament? I didn't quite. It was from the New Testament. Okay. And it says. 1 John 4 in the New Testament. And it was a piece of the the New Testament I rediscovered after I fell down the rabbit hole of research into paleo contact. And in my research, I rediscovered aspects of primitive Christianity that have been almost completely forgotten. And in this little verse in 1 John 4, the writer is saying that he fully expects the members of the churches at that time, very early years of Christianity, to be in contact with other kinds of entity. Now, he never quite says what these entities are. Ah, he uses the word spirits, but he doesn't define whether these are interdimensional entities or if they are ancestral spirits or if they are beings that are as physical as you and me, but they communicate telepathically. He never says what these other entities are other than that you or I should be expecting to get communication from them. And rather than pin down who we're talking to, what the writer said was it's very important that you keep your sovereignty, keep your autonomy, and weigh up what you hear for yourself. Does it make sense? And he says in that passage, if if any entity comes along and trash talks Jesus, don't take any notice of that one. (laughs) So the real point he's making is you keep your wits about you. You're a sovereign being. We're a sovereign species. Let's listen carefully to what we hear and think for ourselves what it means. Your latest book, which I found extraordinarily well titled, The Scars of Eden, and we could do six hours on that title alone. Um, That's a great idea. I, 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 just, I just felt it was so appropriate to what we're dealing with because looked at from a non-theological perspective, through a non-theological lens, the human race is the are, 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 we are the descendants of all our history and mythology and folklore and kind of you know aggregate consciousness that come from however heck we have found ourselves on this planet, subject to these incredible stories of our origins, our in, interactions with the ineffable, with folks beyond the planet with gods 
and goddesses, etc., etc. And in amongst all those, the idea of extraterrestrials, up until relatively recently, seems to be part and parcel of the human story. Um, we, we have a colleague, uh, Michael Hill, who has a great line. He says that he has had contact with people who are not from here. Well, the history of humanity appears to be a contact with folks, people, entities, consciousness, not from here. And our ongoing experiment is only the latest. And given that I have this kind of scientific side of me, I want to know who we're talking to and why they're talking to us and why they're talking to us now. So the Scars of Eden, as the title implies, implies that the human race has been scarred by this origin connection story. And I'm kind of curious, how did you wind up there? And what did you write about earlier that led you to this latest work? Well, you see, people know me today because I write in the area of uh, paleo contact, escaping from Eden and the scars of Eden are all about the theory of paleo contact, the theory that our ancestors in the deep past had contact with other civilizations and were even colonized by them. But my route there kind of surprises people because, as you said, Richard, my background is in the world of Christian ministry. I was for 33 years in church-based ministry as a church doctor, theological educator, archdeacon for the Anglican Church in Australia. And through all that work, I was deeply involved in interpreting the Bible. And part of what I trained pastors in was how to interpret ancient texts. How do you get out of them what the writers intended you to get from them? And then what do you do with those messages? And curiously, that was my route into the world of paleo contact. In my teaching as students, I teach them to do something we would call form criticism, which is where you ask of every text, what kind of literature is this that I'm looking at? And then we did source criticism. Where did these stories come from? And how do these versions differ from the originals? And then you always ask the linguistic question, what do the words actually mean? Those are the questions you ask to drill down into the texts. And it was simply through asking those questions that I began to realize that there is another story of human origins that's hidden in plain sight in the texts of the Bible. Now, anyone who's read the Bible, even a children's Bible to a child, will realize that there are some funny things, some oddities, some anomalies about the translations, the stories we tell from those texts. So if you sit down with the book of Genesis and, uh, you know, uh, a four-year-old, and you come to the verse that says, let us make, the four-year-old will say, who's the us? Who's God talking about? If there's only him, who's the us? Let us make the humans to look like one of us, or one of whom. Get to the story of the flood, the four-year-old will say, well, God killed everybody. And then you have to explain why the God of love can do genocide, and it's perfectly all right. So on and so forth. Mm. Genesis 3 have the death penalty for eating a piece of fruit, and the four-year-old will say, couldn't God see that was going to happen? So these were some of the anomalies that any parent struggles with if they read the Bible to a child, any preacher struggles with if they're preaching to a church, and any theological educator struggles with if they're training pastors to preach from the scriptures. And for me, the key to it was 
getting the time to go back to these questions, realize that they are all translation issues, and drill down into the translation questions. And it was a, a stroke of good fortune, I could say, when uh, I was injured in an ultimate Frisbee match, and it gave me some convalescent time to sit down with the texts and get back to the root meanings of some really key words. And when I did that, what became clear to me was that the stories and beginnings in the Bible are actually summary forms of earlier stories that were told by the ancient Sumerians, Babylonians, Arcadians, and Assyrians. And their stories were stories of paleocontact, stories of our ancestors being governed over by visiting ET civilizations and a plurality of them who were often in conflict with one another over how Project Humanity should be governed. And as I read those stories of the conflicts and saw them echoing in the Bible, I realized we are in the same conflicts today. The same struggles are being struggled. And it raises the question of in what company are we currently living in this corner of the cosmos? Do you distinguish between um, what I would call um, the kind of the Stargate SG-1 model uh, where you have, you know, ETs that meddle in the nursery and, you know, a, an all-encompassing, you know, cosmic, multidimensional uh, creator God who basically kind of lets this stuff happen because it's part of some larger plan? Well, I must say that what I've discovered in my journeys in paleo contact have really forced me to reframe a lot of my thinking about God and, and what ah. we mean by God. God is a really loaded word. <laughs> you think? <laughs> <laughs> and as soon as you use the word God, all sorts of programs snap on in people's minds if they've gone through catechesis or religious education or grown up in any culture with any mainstream religion with a god figure there are all these associated ideas that just sort of snap into place and it can be a very very unhelpful word for that reason but something that began opening the picture up for me was to realize that the very anthropomorphic idea of god that a lot of people have you know, basically the king of the universe who pulls all the strings, that really wasn't the idea of God that, for instance, the early Christians began with. If you go back to the beginning and listen to writers like Clement of Alexandria or Origen or Justin Martyr, you'll realize they had a much bigger, more cosmic idea of God. Mm. There's a very informative moment in the book of Acts when the Apostle Paul, who's often referred to as the architect of Christianity, has to describe this is the guy who had the conversion on the way to Damascus, that guy. On the road to Damascus, the very same. So he finds himself in Athens, and so he's preaching to a crowd who are not Christians, they're not Jewish, so he has to describe from scratch what he means by God. Mm. And he says this, he says, by God I mean the source of the cosmos and everything in it, that in which we all live and move and have our being. And what's interesting about that are the implications that our intelligence, yours and mine, is a participation in source intelligence, divine intelligence, our consciousness, 
is a participation in source consciousness, our very being. So we're a fractal part of his God. And that word fractal is superb because the Apostle Paul was a huge fan of Plato, Mm. who wrote half a millennium before Jesus. And when Plato mapped out his idea of God, I I realized this was the idea the Apostle Paul and these early Christian leaders had in their mind. In Plato's mind, in the beginning, was what we would call a unified field of consciousness. And the consciousness precedes the material universe. He then says, to use the language you just offered, that that unified field of consciousness fractalized to form the material universe so that consciousness could experience itself. And our existence as conscious material beings are all aspects of that self-discovery. And so that old model of God as an individual or God as a personality or the king of the universe and we're all his subjects is so crude as to be almost irrelevant. This is the much more cosmic picture which people like Plato and the Apostle Paul in our ancestral past were dealing with. And I think it helps us to get back to some of that more open, more cosmic kind of thinking. Well, when we almost look at the evolution of of theology over the last several, you know, couple thousand years and say it's devolved from this very elevated and synoptic perspective way back then. Yes, it has devolved. I quite agree. And it's not been by accident. Oh, it's it's really been a very politicized process of narrowing what originally was a kaleidoscope of philosophies and theologies into this narrow orthodoxy, which essentially gives a religious gloss to whatever form of feudalism you're wishing to run. But, you know, you look at the Roman Empire, it's the classic example, and it's, it's the prototypical example, where they massaged Christianity into this religion of worship and obedience that has God and the emperor at the top, the senators and the bishops in the middle, and the compliant, obedient people at the bottom. And Which that is was incredibly really... mirrored by the church then, the Roman Catholic yeah. Church. That's really where those structures came from. It really is Roman imperial feudalism that got pushed into Christianity as the empire began running the show, building the buildings, and interfering in theological decisions. And I say that as a recovering Catholic. I quite understand. (laughs) Well, the Anglicans are only one, one, you know, I blink away. One degree removed, that's right. Yeah. I mean, I remember vividly thinking one morning when I was like 10 about this kind of stuff, and I was sitting on the porch in Lewistown, Maryland, looking across the street at the Methodist church where the church fathers had come into our restaurant and basically tried to run my parents out of town because we served people of, of not the same color, and they would ring oh. the, the church bell 140 times on, on, on Sunday morning to drive our uh, bed and breakfast tourists away, truckers and people, you know, trying to sleep late because they'd been traveling and all that. So I, I'm sitting there one morning and I'm looking at this Methodist church, which to me was a personification of not God, but the other guy. And I'm thinking, yes, I wonder why I really love the Catholic Church so much. And I realized it was because of the music. 
and the pageantry and the and the chance and the the pomp and the circumstance, um, which was unparalleled then and is unparalleled now. I mean, that music really gets to the heart of the soul of of yes. humans. Yes, it can be very beautiful, and there are beautiful aspects to Catholic spirituality. But through history, we see that if you get your image of God a little bit distorted, it distorts everything. Mm -hmm. If you have a God who's a little bit genocidal, then it creates people who are a little bit genocidal. And unfortunately, we've justified all kinds of injustices, including the ones you've just described, in the name of God because of that distortion. And in my book, Escaping from Eden, I argue that that confusion has arisen because we've interpreted ancient stories of ET contact with stories about God. How, and it's brought about an image of God that's quite wrong. How uh, We're actually coming to the uh, top of the hour here, so I will hold my question. I mean, I've got lots of questions this morning <laughs> as we get back to... Uh, to where we are with with all of this, because it's it, to me it's it's such an extraordinary journey that we've embarked on. Because apparently we are in touch with some kind of consciousness, and given the example of Stargate SG One, and you know, given the idea that there can be folks that pretend to be God, and mm. we've had a literature which has you know, moved us in that direction where we're looking for the guy in the long white beard that basically controls us for its, to whom we owe, you know, thousand percent sovereignty, no questions, don't ask how high to jump, that kind of thing. Uh, who we're talking to, to me, is not a trivial question. My guest this morning is theologian, among other things, uh, Paul Wallace, writer, author, um, mythologist, researcher, and an, asking, an asker, I'll do that right, of deep questions, some of which we will be able to get to this morning, and most of which we will have to relegate to another day, another night, and another time, because there are more questions piling up at the moment than answers. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hoagland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 cents a day. 
support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. Welcome back, everyone, to The Other Side of Midnight. My guest tonight is Paul Wallace, Archdeacon of the Anglican Church. They're in uh, one of the provinces or the territories of uh, Australia. I guess they're territories and not provinces. Um, And he's moved from theological perspectives to ET and paleocontact perspectives and discovered, I guess, Paul, uh, if I summarize uh, crassly, that maybe those are the same perspectives. Yes, I, my translation was led me to the conclusion that through the ages there's been some confusion. When we found ancient stories of paleo contact, they've been interpreted as spiritual experiences or even experiences of God, and it's distorted our God stories, but also it's distorted our understanding of who we are and what the cosmos is that we're all living in. Well, you can certainly say that. See, I'm kind of intrigued with the whole run on television, where a friend of mine once said, but Dick, if anything is real, it will be on television. Because uh, Stargate SG-1, which was a very, very complicated series, masquerading loosely as a sci-fi show, I think really is covering the reality that the DOD and the White House and the government are now slowly edging us toward in complete approbation of the so-called Brookings prescription of the last, you know, 50 years to where we're going to acknowledge as a society, A, we're not alone. But once you get to that point, it's like, well, who the hell are we dealing with? And is someone setting us up for what I call the God trap? like SG, Stargate SG-1? Well, there have been some really significant movements in those directions in the last few years. If we look at what happened last year, for yeah. instance, with the Senate, Senate briefings, I know a lot of people who are interested in ufology and ET contact were very angry, upset and frustrated at what came out in the Senate briefings because it appeared to be an absolute whitewash of the subject. I mean, having admitted, with the Pentagon having admitted that they've had in place a a unit or different units for 70 years investigating ET contact, UFO crashes, so on and so forth, you would expect there to be a lot of data to have to wade through in a Senate briefing, not a nine-page report with no mention of that body or its research. And there were things in it that were almost provocations to say this is a total whitewash. And yet even within those papers, and I think a lot of people missed this, there was an acknowledgement 
that U.S. defense operations are interfered with on average once every six weeks mm. by UFOs or UAPs. Mm. And the report went on to say there is zero evidence that that is the um, covert technology of uh, home operations or the covert technology of foreign powers. So you've only got to say that and say that's been the average over the last, what was it, 17 years they were looking at, for, to know straight away that we've got company and it's very advanced company and we've probably had that company for a long time. Yet because it was buried in such a lamely worded <laughs> report, a lot of people missed that, but it's a huge admission. Well, a lot of people missed company. it because it hasn't really reached the center of the radar screen yet. It's not really it has it become the obsession and I've, I've seen a lot of, um, what's the term I, I would use, uh, you know, UFO people, commentators, those that kind of have followed this field for decades, kind of all, you know, wringing their hankies and decrying it's going to be, a, you know, a, 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 you know a kind of a brainwashing thing, a, a, another exercise in psyops and all that. And I may be an outlier, but I think it's all irrelevant. I don't think it matters what the Pentagon says or the White yes. House. The only thing that matters is they acknowledge the field is credible. And because yes. of this huge exactly. database and the democratization, uh, as exemplified by the little effort that we're pursuing, the weight of the evidence, the overwhelming reality of whatever we're dealing with is going to come crashing through regardless of the spin doctors the PSYOPs programs, the CIA deep state manipulations, all of that's almost irrelevant. And I'll use yes. the analogy of, you know, grandma, my grandmother is quilt, doing a quilt, right? And it only takes one person pulling on one thread to make the whole damn quilt fall apart. We are now so supercharged, so uh, superconductive. We're, we're at such a level of interest in this field that all it took was for it to become credible and everything yes. possible is going to come falling out of that closet, regardless of what the government intends. Uh, I agree. And I think that alongside that, it's lovely that the acknowledgement is there, but I think it's a fool's errand then to say, okay, can you now declassify all your papers, please? Because Clearly, that is not going to happen. I think it's nice to have the acknowledgement, which is something completely new in my lifetime. But the call I put out in my book, The Scars of Eden, is really more akin to what you're doing, which is a grassroots response. Because I think you could sit down any friendship circle or any family circle anywhere in the world. And if you ask the question, have you ever experienced something mm. you couldn't explain there would not be a single group that didn't have a story and i'd be surprised if each group didn't have a number of stories if you can listen without ridicule but with respect to those stories of the strange then you can begin joining the dots and the dots add up to a picture that we are not alone so we can have a grassroots process of disclosure that has nothing to do with banging on the doors of government or of NASA and asking them to come clean. That is irrelevant because we are in contact. Someone in your family knows that. Someone in your friendship group knows it. If we will talk and listen to each other, then our company becomes 
blindingly obvious. And alongside what was done in Washington, there have been plenty of other authorities who stepped up to the mic to give the announcement that we have company. I think one of the most interesting was before, not Christmas just gone, but the Christmas before, when Haim Ashed, the Brigadier General, who was Israel's chief... Oh, of yes, that guy. I wanted to ask you years. about him. Yeah. He stepped forward and said on the basis of that experience, which is pretty privileged, the Chief of Space Security for Israel for 27 years, on the basis of that, his understanding is that we are already in contact at a covert government level with an intergalactic federation which has chosen not to self-disclose until humanity's understanding of space is more developed. Now, every element of that statement is really, really interesting. But when he said it, I, I cheered because he is repeating what our ancestors and our ancestral narratives have said for thousands of years, and that is that we live in a soup of interdimensional, extraterrestrial company, that there is a range of ET demographics interested in planet Earth and Project Humanity, many of whom seem to feel they have a stakeholding in the project and who have been in some kind of a, well, a federation is what Hamishad calls it, a sky council is what the Bible calls it, where there's some kind of an arrangement as to how human affairs are governed over, how the planet is governed over. So he's repeating something that is ages old and it begins to help us get a handle on who we're in contact with, who may be keeping silent and who may be communicating. Based on our own work, which as I said at the top of the show has kind of eschewed UFOs because decades ago when I was in um, uh, Springfield at the museum and I had a chance to personally spend an entire night with Betty and Barney Hill, and ran, you know, kind of into the uh, weird, bizarre PR of the U.S. Air Force who tried to palm off things that I knew were not real, you know, for like the constellation of Orion. I made a decision very early on that UFOs were pointless, that if one was really interested in the subject of extraterrestrials and our place in the cosmos, the last place you'd find the answers was in the field of ufology. So I kind of held that rule of thumb up until relatively recently and instead, when the opportunity presented, I went into the whole area of extraterrestrial archaeology because yes. ruins do not lie. Ruins stand still. If you find the ancient libraries, they will be, well, they'll be spun within those cultures, but <clears throat> there'll be a much more accurate reflection, like libraries all over this planet have been a much more accurate reflection to real scholars trying to figure out this elusive thing called truth. It's only been relatively recently that I've kind of embraced the idea that, like it or not, we're going to have to deal with the UFO thing and with people out there. And this was even before the whole communications experiment. But what I've been developing over the last 20 or so years is the idea that the reason that officials, particularly the governments, the deep state, global, unified government on this issue, we may all be fragmented at trivial levels of, of, of policy and economics and all that, but at the big questions like who the hell are we and why are we here, there appears to be this unified subtext, this deep state underlying all the nation states to not break cover, to not you know, give away the secret, which is 
I don't think we're dealing with aliens at all. I think that the real reason for the cover-up is because we're dealing with family. <laughs> I completely agree, and I love how you put that. It's very interesting that back in 2009, when Pope Benedict XVI called on the Pontifical Academy of Sciences to hold its symposium, the colloquium, on the implication of contact with other civilizations, mm-hmm. that was the same language his top <laughs> theologians used, that we're talking about cosmic family. And if Well, remember, remember what, Neil Armstrong's very peculiar line when he stepped on the moon? And, and it became a point of contention and the missing A and people looking yes. for, for phoniums that aren't there and all that. You know, yes. I, I was science advisor to Cronkite, so I was there. I mean, I wasn't on the moon, but I was certainly paying very close attention. And I actually had a little minor part of Project Apollo itself through uh, uh, Grumman, who built the lunar module. Neil said that night as he came down the ladder, that's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. And I look at this now and I say, well, it's obvious he was saying one giant leap for mankind is everybody out there we're related to. One small step for man is us, terrestrial man, human beings on this planet alone. And it was like this step to join a family that is congratulating us on our primitive steps back into the brotherhood that we've been severed from for God knows how long. And I don't use that term lightly. Well, look, that's certainly a very meaningful interpretation. And I do think that's the understanding if you peel back one of Truth's protective layers. Oh, yes. Uh, to quote his Said by speech. Armstrong at the White House press conference in 1995 with Bill Clinton beaming over his shoulder. That's right. So there is uh, an, inv- uh, an invitation to dig a little deeper. From <laughs> I never thought Truth had protective layers. Remember all those wide-eyed kids he was talking to? Yes, yes, it's called official secrets, isn't yes, it? Yes, yes. But uh, family, I think, is language. And I was really astonished when I was escaping, uh, sorry, researching, escaping from Eden. I was thrilled as I came across more and more really credible figures in the world of science who are willing to come forward and defend the idea that we live in a populated universe. And among the most interesting are those in the field of DNA research. And if you go right back to the beginning to Francis Crick, mm-hmm. the co-discoverer oh, yes. of the double yes. helix of DNA, he argued right from the get-go that our story as biological beings on planet Earth, he couldn't make it make sense without it being a populated cosmos because he couldn't make the timelines work. And so he argued for something called panspermia. And what panspermia says is that life in the cosmos is the rule rather than the exception. And that the genetic coding for conscious, intelligent, biological life has been disseminated throughout the cosmos, or at least this corner of the cosmos, that whenever it lands on an hospitable planet, it will generate forms of life similar to the ones with which we're familiar on planet Earth. And that means that any visitor from anywhere in our cosmos, ultimately, we're related. Ultimately, we're family. Are you, familiar, you, are you familiar with the um, uh, Sri Lankan astrobiologist, uh, Dr. Chandra Wickrama Singh? No, I'm not. Oh, we, we need to get you guys together. 
Yes, we should be friends. And colleagues and all that good stuff. Because Chandra has been on the show many times. You know, I'm very, you know, proud to be able to call him a friend and a colleague. He was a very good friend and colleague with Sir Fred Hoyle. Oh, yes. And together with a couple other guys, they have discovered, literally, a hard scientific evidence that the cosmos is filled with biology in the form yes. of interstellar dust clouds, which he has been able to mimic in the laboratory with infrared spectral sensors, which, of course, Webb is going to give us in spades. Hint, hint. Yes. And it's his model based on actual data, empirical data, not, you know, theory, that that's yes. following Crick, who basically said there wasn't enough time in the universe for random you know, agglomerations of molecules to create DNA on Earth, one planet. But if it happened once in the cosmos and then it literally wafted throughout the universe, wherever it lands in a favorable environment, it it develops its own evolution there, but it's got the seeds of replication, self-replication within it. In other words, it's exactly the same model, and he's got the actual astrophysical evidence, including, oh, wonderful. including, has you been following the weird story of the algae appearing on the surface of the space station? Yes, yes, I'm aware of that. And that's yes. obvious they're not coming up from the planet. They're raining down through the solar system. That's exactly right. And the European Space Agency has spent billions of dollars going out looking for algae <laughs> and the building blocks of life on fragments of comets. Yep. Uh, yep. So they are spending real money testing the theory of panspermia because they're pretty cluey that this is correct, that this is in fact the case. And whether you're looking at dust clouds or solid fragments landing on the Earth from somewhere else, we would expect to find the vestiges of life from elsewhere in the cosmos. Someone is sending us emissaries in a very prime directive a la Roddenberry's Star Trek kind of way yes. to kind of dangle the evidence in front of the mainstream that makes it so overwhelming that they ultimately will have to be dragged kicking and screaming into acknowledging the obvious. For instance, the same set of magic hyperdimensional physics numbers that were attached to Muamua, also attached to uh, the Borisov comet that came in from interstellar space just a year after? I mean, come on. You've got all yes. of science, and then within the space of a year, you've got two unique visitors that come from the stars, and, and no one says they were sent. And now we've got another object called Comet Leonard, which, according to one of our numbers guys, uh, David Sarita, also is passing uh, uh, perihelion around the sun in an in a exact multiple of the um, uh, Fibonacci series. So someone yes. is sending us these objects, when I say us, the, the mainstream, so they get the message in a prime directive way. Okay, we've got to expand our window here, our kind of out-of-the-box thinking to acknowledge the unthinkable, which is these are not ancient bergy bits. They're actually yeah. ancient habitats or decaying spacecraft that are outgassing as they get close enough to the sun because they've been sent on trajectories to deliberately place them within our instruments to build that case for the mainstream. 
I think that's exactly right. I take my hat off to RV Love standing up and saying that's what it is. Well, before we get too enthusiastic about Avi, I think Avi is a representative of a faction, kind of like the designated hitter. It's his job. (laughs) I'm serious. It's his job to appear to stick his neck out, but he's the designated hitter. He is backed by an invisible college, as my friend Jacques Vallée used to say. And he's the visible tip of the spear, but he's not a rogue. He's not a pioneer. He's not out there because look at all the government support now. He's funding Project Galileo again with the DOD support. Come on. He's not a rogue. He's part of the unveiling, which in 2022, I think we're finally going to get pregnant. Well, I I applaud that unveiling. It's more Except that they try to control the earlier. message, Paul. That's why oh, I kind of well. set up this independent effort what? because I'm very yes. concerned they're going to try to control like the old uh, outer limits, all that you see in here. Of course they will. I mean, all governments communicate on all matters with the public on a need-to-know basis. That's, oh, look that's at, look at General so Ashad's statement. General Ashad, the first guy you quoted, oh, there's an intergalactic federation out there who are choosing not to self-disclose. Poppycock. That's propaganda. Because the folks we're talking to are chattering away. We can't get them to shut up. And they're sending us very specific mathematical formula and codes and messages which relate, get this, drumroll, to our own ancient history here on planet Earth, specifically sacred sites, specifically in one set of transmissions, Stonehenge and the Great Pyramid at Giza. I totally agree. This is why I was saying how much I value grassroots disclosure, because I don't think we should ever expect the powers, government, to communicate with us in an open-handed, open way. They will... They will always want to control the narrative. Of course they will. That's why we need to communicate with each other, and that's why communication that happens with um, ordinary human beings is so important. And that's very often been the role of indigenous story, the kind of story that never makes its way into the news or school textbooks, but that carries this knowledge from generation to generation so that we're ready to have these conversations with our neighbours. Let's go back to your evolution from squeaky clean mainstream Anglican to far out theological paleo contact guy. Trace some of that evolution and how you got fixated on Eden, escape from Eden, scars of Eden. Eden is pretty big in your in, on your radar screen, obviously. It is. Uh, it, it's a really helpful word and idea to latch onto because if you say Eden people immediately think, oh, yes, that was the paradise that Adam and Eve lived in. Whereas when you go back to the texts and you do the translation work, the picture that emerges is quite different. Eden was not a paradise of genetic experimentation where our ancestors were adapted by ET visitors from primates already existing on the planet Mm -hmm. now i'm not just saying that off the top of my head that is actually the story of the bible when you translate the word elohim 
in the plural as powerful ones. That's the root meaning of that word. Now, through the ages, we've translated that word as God. Use the root meaning, the powerful ones, and the story of genetic engineering emerges very, very quickly. And if that's all that had happened, I might just have dismissed that thought and thought, wow, doesn't the story change when you translate it differently? It doesn't change randomly. When you make that change, and I go through this exercise in Escaping from Eden, the stories flip around and run in parallel with what the Sumerians, Babylonians, Arcadians, and Assyrians had to say. And you realize that the stories that occur in both canons of information, the biblical and the Mesopotamian, they are all memories of traumas that our ancestors experienced at the hands of our colonizers. So that's why I talk about the scars of Eden, because I think our psyche as a species, our psychology as human beings, has been shaped and scarred by that experience from that time to this. So this is kind of E.T. Freudian psychology? Well, I suppose so. I mean, <laughs> Freud was right about a lot of things. And what we or maybe I should be to... referring to Jung, because I think Jung actually oh, worked in this. A lot of insight there. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And particularly when you want to get into the idea of communication with other kinds of entity who have been there from the beginning, then Jung is the person you want to go to. Okay, according to the canonical story, um, we were kicked out of Eden and barred, you know, the, the flaming, the angels with the flaming swords and all That's that. That's right. Your title of the precedent book to the current one, Scars of Eden, Escaping from Eden, almost sounds like a self-liberation project. Am I getting the right <laughs> flavor there? Oh, absolutely, because... Our story as a human race is one of perpetually struggling to escape from forces that would uh, dominate us mm. and that would spoil our enjoyment of this planet and of the human condition. And I think that mirrors in what our traditional thinking and our religious thinking has, has often done. So, yes, you're quite right, Richard. Very shrewd. There's a parallel between my escape from patterns of thought that were really quite negative and limiting all the, to the idea the evolution of the human from race. being an Anglican. Okay. <laughs> Indeed. And then the evolution of the human race from being a slave species to someone else. Well, let me give you another one that that 10 year old kid sitting on the porch of our bed and breakfast, looking at the Methodist church and knowing that the fathers of that church had threatened my parents in very mm. deliberate ways and wondering how is that religious? How is that godly? Exactly. Um, the idea that the bad guy in the Bible in Eden was someone who showed up to give Adam and Eve knowledge always yeah. stuck in my craw. I could never exactly. quite reconcile that, which to me was, even at age of 10, a liberating move. Knowledge is supposed to set you free, right? That's Why right. was and the God, guy who was going to give them knowledge, the bad guy? And then as I got older, I started looking at things from kind of like a Stargate perspective. And I came to the conclusion that maybe, just maybe, we put the wrong titles on the wrong beings. We have done exactly, because in that story, God wants the human being so unintelligent, they don't even know yes. they're naked. They want us, he wants us like animals. And it is a naming problem. You go to the Sumerian originals, and it's not a story of God and the devil. It's the story of two ET factions warring over how intelligent they want the humans mm. to be. 
Hey, you know, we're actually um, completely running out of time here. That's terrible. I, I get so trapped in these conversations. My guest this morning is Paul Wallace. I should say theologian Paul Wallace. Um, we're talking about God, extraterrestrials, humankind's contact with the ineffable. Did we get barred from Eden or did we escape? And we're still in the process of trying to come to terms with escaping from some kind of servitude to something which, it turns out, is frankly lower than the angels. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Sunday night, grading soon into Monday morning. From the Land of Enchantment on the other side of midnight, my guest this morning is Paul Wallace, 
And we're discussing the ineffable, escaping from Eden, the scars of Eden. Obviously, a multi-dimensional metaphor. Did we physically escape from prison to become homo sapiens that we know today? And are we still suffering from the scars of that imprisonment and in the Stargate SG-1 model that God was not exactly who a lot of people think he was? Answers in the next two hours? Well, at least the beginning of the right questions. So, Paul, please pick up from there. Did we escape physically? And if so, did we have help? Well, part of the story finds roots in the Sumerian narratives, which we rediscovered in the 1800s. We hadn't known them for centuries because we had forgotten the ancient languages and the ancient pattern of writing that they used, the the cuneiform glyphs. Then we discovered the translation key in 1835, the Behistun inscription. And as we began reading the stories, we began recognizing them. And so the escape from Eden in the Sumerian version of the story was more a throwing out because we begin with a a race of what we would call clones who were there essentially as a workforce for these visitors, much as we use horses and cattle. These visitors used human beings um, to do the heavy lifting for them, to do the mining for them. They found that more convenient, apparently, than machinery. That's what we were doing there. And then this figure comes along that we were talking about just before the break, translated as the serpent in the Bible, as Enki in the Sumerian. He is the commander of Project Earth. And his younger brother is his senior, who's the commander of this region of space, apparently, who comes along and says, let's just keep this running. It's ticking over nicely. We're getting whatever it is what we want, minerals, whatever it might be. But Enki has been living with the humans and is realizing that this single gender force of clones is not really a very manageable, sustainable, happy kind of society. Okay, let me, let me, Paul, let me, let me stop you there because obviously you're, you're giving us now the uh, Zachariah Sitchin version. I've always wondered, and I knew Zach and, you know, we visited each other and, I would show up at his conferences and he would, you know, say hi and that kind of stuff. I've always wondered his interpretation of these texts was kind of like interpreting the New York Times, like you can take every single word as, as real. And I'm incredibly suspicious of anybody that approaches these texts in that literal format. Do we know that we're dealing with relations, brothers? I mean, the, the, the human or humanoid kind of resonates with the family model, but how, how closely are we looking at reportage or are yeah. we looking at, at metaphors, similes, and parables that are part of a much larger and really until we find the libraries lost to time truths? That is a great question, but I should tell you that when I wrote Escaping from Eden, I had never heard of Zacharias. Ah. <laughs> and I'd got about three quarters of the way through writing the book when suddenly I stumbled across him and I thought, oh, someone else has come across some similar conclusions. And I thought, well, should I stop and read up on Zechariah Sitchin and everyone else who's written on this before I go back to my book? And I thought, no, I'm going to follow 
the data that I'm ah. following from my start point as a theologian, from my start point as a teacher of hermeneutics. I'm going to follow the texts, follow my logic, and I'm going to see where that leads. I'm going to look for correlations in other narratives and see what conclusions I arrive at. And then if there's any overlap between what I'm saying from my start point in the Bible and what Zechariah Sitchin said, then that suddenly becomes quite interesting. Very scientific, because very rigorous, very I, the way it should know, be done. Yeah, Exactly. I want my book to have its own integrity. I don't want to write a he said, she said kind of book. <laughs> so there is an overlap between what he said and what I said. It's not a total overlap. I don't um, share all the ideas and theories that he presented, but there is an overlap. When I went to the Sumerian stories, I made a point of only using the translations that are most widely accepted. So if you read it, as you were saying, at a fairly literal level, then you've got these terms, as you say, like uh, brother. Were they brothers or were they factions? You look at the engineering of human beings. They use a mud. Well, was it a mud or was it actually something far more technical? Always going to be a layer of metaphor as the ancients interpreted. Yeah, were rocks, rocks, or were they actually things like tablets and iPhones and solid things, electronic made of materials that were from the earth, so they were, quote, rocks. Exactly. So you're asking all the right questions, Richard. But whether we're looking at brothers or factions, we are looking at a conflict over what was to be done with human beings. And there was a disagreement that's recorded in the Sumerian story and in ancestral narratives from all around the world, specifically over how intelligent and technological the human race was to be. So when you see that repeat in different language, different names, different metaphor, and all those ancient people groups say the fallout was the same, that's when you begin to think, hold on, Something happened that all these different cultures are recalling. And so you go to the texts, not as diary entries or in a fundamentalist mm. way, you know, word by word, it happened exactly this way. But you do go with the question, what memory was this story written to carry? And one of those traumatic moments was to do with upgrading our ancestors to being fertile, conscious intelligent and once that had happened we were actually moved out of the enclosed zone for experimentation and started living on the planet at large so that is our move out of eden not that we found the door and escaped but that that period of experimentation had concluded and now we're out on the planet's surface and that's a motif that recurs in the ancestral narratives of people all around the planet how do you um integrate this model which seems to have a lot of you know data going you know in its favor with this with the mainstream anthropological models of lines of free homo sapiens you know homo erectus neanderthalensis the denisovans etc how do you integrate these two separate lines of research to where we wind up with something which is actually what really happened. Well, we had a really interesting period in history in terms of anthropological research because when you and I were at school, 
the evolution of humanity was really simple. Oh, yes. You started off, you know, with a primitive ape-like creature, and then bit by bit they got cleverer oh, and cleverer. The leaky Yes, until they turn into you and me. Well, we're in a much more complex world now. We've, we've discovered that we and the Neanderthals intermingled and were part of the same civilization. We have Denisovan in our blood. We very recently had very short neighbors in Indonesia, the, Homo the hobbits. so-called hobbits. That's oh, right. Okay. And so it's a far, now there's the dragon man in China. It's a far more plural picture far more complicated, far more kinds of human being in the past, and in a way, more missing links than ever we've had before. So it just raises the question again of exactly how do these new species suddenly pop up? And then on top of that, how do we advance from beings that live like animals on the planet to beings that can farm and build cities? So all those questions are even more live today than they were a hundred years ago. Well, it does seem, you know, now that we're on the edge of acknowledging, A, we're not the only folks here, and B, they could be family. I mean, to me, that's the, that's the dynamite under the bank vault. That's going to blow yes. everybody's mind to kingdom come, and it's the reason for all the weird, multi-layered secrecy, because it introduces the idea that the folks that came and tinkered you know, us together are really relations that came from not very far away, i.e. a declining and desperately needing a new home set of civilizations on Mars as it went to hell in a handbasket after the Great War, the Great Solar System War. Yes, I really think you're on to something there. The Great Solar System War is something that is told in various ways in mythologies all around the world. To go back to Plato, he believed, uh, I, I can't believe this is in mainstream philosophy, <laughs> he believed that our ancestors were adapted by visitors from somewhere else in the cosmos. You're kidding. Yes, it's all in his writings if you read Wait, wait, wait. Fido Everybody and... knows about Atlantis and Plato, and they don't focus anything on that. I know. I know. Well, astonishingly, we all studied Plato at theological college, training to be pastors, and we learned to quote him when talking about Christian theology, but we didn't even talk about Atlantis, let alone <laughs> uh, holographic universe, let alone previous civilizations, let alone interventions in human evolution. But it is all there along with their altered states of consciousness and contact experiences in Fido and Timaeus and Critias. Go and get the books. You can read it for yourselves. It's, it's incredible. It has been there all the time in plain sight. And it's interesting that you mentioned Mars because I do agree with you that there is something far more psychologically arresting and disturbing to find evidence not of aliens on Mars, but evidence of ourselves. I think that really would pull us up. Oh, there is overwhelming evidence now. And when, and when Ron Gerbron comes on in the third hour, he's a member of our enterprise imaging team. We've been working on the Mars stuff for years, trying to get this, this book out. And, you know, it's actually good that we didn't get it out too soon because now with perseverance, we've got the final finishing touches on a model, including imagery of art, including the discovery of this ancient glass dome over Yezero, including paul this is going to blow your socks off we've got different scale mirror imaging of huge pyramids in jezero crater in the southern part 
that mirror exactly what's on the Giza Plateau, which mirrors the Orion Belt stars, et cetera, et cetera. So once this thing begins to unravel, there's no way the DOD, the Biden administration, whoever wants to control it, is going to be able to control it. It's going to be like trying to control an avalanche rushing down a uh, Swiss Alp. Absolutely. And I think the most exciting possibility that can flow from that is, again, not a sudden declassification of files, but the fact that all of us should jump in and say, I want to know what's going mm-hmm. on and participate in the level of disclosure that's actually happening from our neighbors to the human race and not expect all the information to be siphoned through official channels. Yep, yep. Okay, so going back to your conversion from Anglican to real scientist, <laughs> um, <laughs> when did you let's, – let, let's go back to Plato. Talk about Plato talking about other folks tinkering in the nursery. Yes, he talks in a couple of places about entities that we would describe as extraterrestrial or interdimensional beings. He talks about extraterrestrial beings in the language of people who live on islands in the sky, Mm. who have a more advanced knowledge of outer space, who are highly intelligent and live longer than we do. Well, we've got language for that today. And then he talked about entities he called children of God, who came in the distant past to upgrade human beings for higher consciousness and higher intelligence. He doesn't say who they were or where they were from, but they came from somewhere else to do that upgrade. Now, when Plato said this, you might think he's saying it in a complete bubble. Was no one else saying it at the time? Well, wait, 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 hang on, hang on, hang on. Didn't he hang around yes. with Egyptian priests a lot? Exactly. Yes, <laughs> yes. That's where he got his knowledge from. He quotes a couple of sources. I mean, firstly, he really was a scientist. A lot of his conclusions he reaches by applying logic to things we can all observe. But then he names two other sources, and one is contact experiences through altered states of consciousness. That's the Kaikion ceremony of the Eleusinian sect. He talks about that. And then the other is information that's come from ancient Egypt that was shared by the remnant of the ancient Egyptian priesthood with a real historical figure, a Greek legislator by the name of Solon, who then talked to his grandfather about it, who was a peer of Plato in the classroom of Socrates. So there's this long chain going right back to ancient Egyptian knowledge of previous civilizations and the place of our planet in space and in the cosmos. Hmm. And now, of course, we have literal visual links connecting Egypt unquestionably with huge ancient ruins, megalithic ruins, of, of highly structured but collapsed stuff on Mars. I think the moment you acknowledge the possibility and likelihood of previous civilizations here, you go back to the story of ancient Egypt and you open your mind to a much longer time frame when you look at the artifacts there. And as soon as you're doing that, then it's not so much of a surprise to think there may be connections between that previous civilization and previous civilizations in other places. Well, you know the statistical numerological calculation that connects Sidonia, where the face on Mars is, with the Sphinx on the Giza Plateau? I don't know that formula, but tell me. 
Well, it's roughly about 7,000 to 1. That the, the, the cosine of one is the sine of the latitude of the other. I mean, they're intimately mathematically connected. Yes. Not a coincidence. <laughs> just can't be. Just can't be. But the really amazing yeah. thing, because of the landing of Perseverance in Yezero, and because of the orbital MRO imagery looking down, we now know, we in this, this research group know, why NASA, you know, of all the gin joints in all the world, picked that crater to land in, because in our model, in my model anyway, that was our last departure point before the refugees had to come from there, the deteriorating Mars, to here. And that's why they duplicated the geometry of the Giza Plateau here, which we find an identical duplication there at Jezero. And then there's a much older, much bigger, exact mirror reverse architecture, right side by side. Something happened. And it's like Superman's Phantom Zone, a bubble universe, an encapsulation, a prison, an imprisonment in dimensions, something. There's some reason why this fundamental mirror imaging of the Giza geometry is there side by side at the south, just a few miles away from Perseverance, was sent specifically by NASA to land and take samples for biology analysis on Mars. Well, that makes sense. And what that evidence supports is the idea of civilizations on Earth and on Mars that were contemporaneous. And were and so related. We're, family. And were related, exactly. So we've got a story there of contemporaneous civilizations. And then in other places, we've got stories of breakaway civilizations coming from other places to here because of devastation on their home world or simply because they are expanding their territory. And you find that story in the most surprising places. It's there in the book of Ezekiel and it's there in Zulu mythology as well. Okay, talk about the Ezekiel thing because I'm familiar with the, uh, you know, wheel within a wheel within a wheel, that kind of thing. But the most of the treatments of Ezekiel have been very primitive kind of ufology uh, treatments and not sociological or human or anthropological. Well, the vocabulary of the Ezekiel's wheel uh, story is really fascinating. I share the view that you do have descriptions of technology in that text, which generations of translators translated in spiritual terms because they didn't have a technological grid. The fact that NASA uses an omnidirectional wheel, getting the design from Ezekiel, I think is one of the great jokes of history. But there are other moments in Ezekiel as well, where I believe you're seeing descriptions of much larger craft. The uh, Ruach, uh, that Ezekiel talks about at the beginning of the book is like a space shuttle that two people can sit in. There's, there's Ezekiel and the life form, to use the root meaning of the word there. But in another place, in chapter 39, he describes something which, to our mind, is easier to understand. Now, if you think for a moment how our ancestor would describe a large spacecraft landed on the planet's surface he would describe it as a building because it's solid, the scale of it, because people are moving around inside it. How would he describe uh, walkways that are synthetic 
he would say he's walking on something made of, of metal or marble or polished stone. How would he describe the flashing lights in panels? Well, they would be shields with jewels in them, mm. so on and so forth. If he goes into a hydroponic lab full of perfect plants and perfect foods, he's in, well, he'd call it a walled garden, to use an ancient it's word. It's all context, context, it's context, context. So we begin to pick up that something is there that has come that is capable of supporting possibly tens of thousands of people or beings here for a reason. That could be a breakaway society. It could be a mission. And in Revelation, we have something that mirrors that, the book of Revelation. Again, if you ask how would our ancestor describe a structure with artificial light, well, he'd say it was a city that was in perpetual daytime, which mm. is exactly what he does say. And then when he gives the measurements of the what he calls city, it turns out it's a cube. <laughs> and this cube doesn't stay like a Borg cube, only a little bit nicer, large enough to carry 144,000 human beings. And that when it moves mm. away, it gives the appearance that the planet Earth has just been rolled up. Okay. Let me stop you there. In the Senate report on UAPs, did you happen to notice how many cases they handled? Not one more, not one less? Oh, go on. Don't tell me. It was one of those 144. And we have chosen specifically because of the, of the hyperdimensional physics numbers to broadcast on 144.1, and that point one has to do with the current speed of light. The speed of light is not constant. Sorry, folks, but it's not. Yeah. And 430 and 432 is another part of the. See, whoever these guys were in in our model, in my model, at some point they literally redesigned the entire solar system. That's the level of technological godlike capability this physics gives ordinary fallible human beings oh, no well, wonder we exactly it's like giving kids h-bombs that is terrifying plato once again has a framework for that because he talked about something called the demiurge or the craftsman ah. who has exactly those kinds of powers the powers not only to terraform a planet but to form a solar system or uh, the wing of a galaxy. Now, this is mind-boggling to us, but what you're talking about gives us a contemporary framework for the exact same thing. <laughs> Wait till you see what's out there that NASA's been hiding for half a century. In fact, I, I'm going back now and knowing the origins of NASA with uh, Eisenhower and then Kennedy and you know the Project Corona, the CIA uh, involvement with the moon, because I had some leaked imagery which came to me from Project Corona. It turns out, probably, that the reason that we went to the moon, that Kennedy went to the moon, that Eisenhower formed NASA, was to specifically go out and get all this stuff and keep it secret. Why does that not surprise me? Because it has to do with our relatives' relations with the biggest secret they don't want us to know, we're not talking about aliens. We're talking about family and family that at one point played God with us poor relations. 
I think that's right. You know, you talk about family. Families can be quite complicated. Oh, entities, the worst fights are in families. <laughs> and you do. When you listen to the ancestral narratives, you hear some relatives that you think, oh, I'd really like to meet them, and others that you hope you never meet. <laughs> yep. And that's all part of the story of our origins and our present. Yep. Yep. Well, there are other families in contemporaneous political history that we refer to in a very strange way. <clears throat> Mafia families. That's what a lot of this history reads to me like now, looking at it through 21st century eyes. Bible or no Bible. Well, that's right. I mean, there are agendas uh, for Project Earth represented in some of our ancient stories that are not very humane and that have a lot more interest in possessions, control of territory, um, harnessing the properties of the planet, uh, harvesting mineral deposits, things like that. And the humans are sort of just in the way. But then you've got other stories of visitors who are very, very nurturing towards our ancestors, who want us to survive, who want us to develop. If you go to Aboriginal Australian story or Native American story, it's often there that you hear that more nurturing side of things. And all through the ages, those different demographics bump up against each other in conflict over how things should be run. Hmm. I'll tell you what, hold it there. We are at the um, top of the hour. It is now the witching hour here in the Land of Enchantment. My guest this morning uh, is Paul Wallace. And uh, you basically ain't heard nothing yet. We're going to be joined by Ron Gerbron our resident generalist who has been busily making up, um, making up questions and having some comments because he's been chafing at the bit, wanting to join the conversation. And I've got a few more myself. And then, of course, uh, if you really want to join us, I will give out phone numbers and we might even entertain some questions from our worldwide audience. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. TheOtherSideOfMidnight.com Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Support the broadcast and don't miss another groundbreaking conversation. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. 
listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. side of midnight for this now Sunday night, Monday morning here in the land of enchantment. My guest this morning is Paul Wallace. And we're going to be joined, if I do the right thing here, let me do this properly, uh, by uh, Ron Gerbron. I have to do that. And we've got some... uh, Actually, Paul, we've got some listeners who uh, are asking some questions. So with your permission, given that we're kind of at a break point, as we're going to bring Ron on, uh, let me click on a Skype call here. Oh, wait a minute. It says he is just listening. So he doesn't want to be on the air. He just wants to listen. So, Ron, you are on the air. Okay. So welcome to the other side of Midnight. What have we triggered in your fertile mind in imagination with our uh, palaver for the last two hours. Oh, I'm having lots of fun listening to this because, well, you know already, Richard, that I agree with most everything uh, there. The, oh, that um, sounds that was I, boring. Come on, come on. Yeah. Well, I, I, yeah. Well, your friend is a, your friend is an Anglican. He reminded me of my um, good friend from years ago, Ernie, who was a defrocked Anglican minister. Um, well, I guess Paul hasn't Thanks. made it to that stage yet because he's been careful politically. <laughs> well, Anglican, you know, part of their background, Ag- Anglicans can get can marry, you know, the pre there. Yeah, uh, yes. But uh, if you carry that over to yeah, uh, uh, Ron, let me stop you there and ask Paul, why haven't you yeah. been drummed out of the core? Well, I think if I was, you know, applying for a promotion. Uh, I might find I'm I'm not at the top of the list at present. I'm in a luxurious position of working independently, so um, in that way I'm untroubled by people's uh, raised eyebrows at the sort of things I'm writing. There you go. Yeah, yeah. My friend Ernie, or as we called him, Dirty Ernie, that was a nickname he got from his uh, church confreres because, uh, well, he could marry. And apparently he was, but uh, someone else was also married, and there was a little bit of uh, crosstalk. <laughs> so uh, they, apparently you can't – you have to stay with your wife, not the other guys. Uh, but uh, details, details, doesn't matter. He was a fine human being. Anyway. Uh, Are we watching our surpluses in public? 
No, I just thought you asked me for linkages. I, I don't have I don't have a lot of dispute with the stuff you were saying, except a couple of thoughts occurred to me that uh, the islands in the sky in the sky reference from um, Plato. Plato. Yeah, the uh, if you were, you know, let's just think. Okay, pop. We're thinking on a, ga- a galactic level, and we're traveling around and we're doing stuff. Uh, if you're a game warden, uh, so to speak. As, as we would look at it, uh, you might want to keep yourself not only distance, but uh, safely un- um, unaccessible to the um, uh, wildlife on the planet. And uh, if you got, if you game wardens decided to, uh, you know, it's a shame to waste all these resources here of these uh, human beings. Uh, why don't we just put them to work and, you know, and make a little side money? Uh, you know, that's, there are avenues headed in that direction, assuming the basic uh, corruptibility of all human strains, uh, which you can see in the Egyptian uh, mythos or in an awful lot of other uh, mythology structures if you bother to look at the details and go, well, uh, that seems a little sli- slippery. You know, or the, or the controversy out of Eden, which has always bothered me as well, by the way. Glad you guys get right to the point. They can go chase after you with the burning torches, because <laughs> uh, the you know in terms of picking the wrong side, uh, yeah, you get that mm. you get that impression a lot when you actually read uh, that material carefully. Even you know, if you're a ten year old kid, yes. Uh, yeah, can yeah I exactly. Can I in here for a second? Yes, please, please. Uh, this is Keith Morgan. Go ahead. Uh, hi, uh, Paul. Uh, I'm the discoverer of the Morgan curve on Mars. Long story. We'll talk after. I thought you discovered uh, Anki. No, no, no. Yeah, I'm. Uh, I've been following um, stitching for a little bit, but every time I'd ask him a question, he'd say, "Read the book. Read the book." And I'm like, "Which book? You got five, six books out. Which one's got my answer in it?" And then before he passed away, he put out the right book, which was the Lost Book of Inky, which is just the translation, not his interpretation. Because what I was getting from his his books was he was trying to shoehorn the Lost Book of Inky into the Bible when the Bible slips into the Lost Book of Inky with no problem. But everything unfolded in front of me, mm-hmm. and I saw all the things that took place. And I usually ask people questions. I said, did you read the Lost Book of Inky? And I said, yeah, yeah. And then I said, okay, then you tell me what the Mark of Cain is. Uh, I don't understand Tell me what the Mark of Cain is. It's in, it's in the book. He doesn't say this is the Mark of Cain, but when you read it, you see this is what the Mark of Cain is. Or I said, you know, what caused the flood? It wasn't because it rained for 40 days and 40 nights. And I said, tell me what happened. And people can't answer the questions. And I'm going, did you read the book? And a lot of people go, yeah, I read the book. See, I didn't Paul, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry that I didn't I'm warn you to turn into a pop quiz. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. um, anyway uh, Paul, can I jump in here again? Oh, no, no, sorry. no, no. Let, 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 oh. Let's see if Paul can answer these couple of questions. I'm very intrigued. Exactly. Yeah. What do you, uh, Paul? What do you have to, Paul? Hello. Yeah, I'm just uh, I'm listening to Keith. I'm oh. really enjoying what he's saying. I'm waiting for it to uh, become a question though, because I think okay. I'm still hearing from him. Oh, uh, that uh, might be a while. The, uh, the <laughs> Go ahead, Keith. Do you know about places on Mars? You know about Alalu, right? Yes, yes. That's who's buried on Mars. Do you know you know his name and you've known his name 
because you've heard it, read it, said it in your entire lifetime, including his half-brother's name, Anu. And we've said it, read it, and nobody realizes this is who we're talking about. My wife and I were at the Bible Museum, and I had seen his name up on a billboard. And I'm like, why is his name on this billboard? And then I looked at the entire billboard, and I realized there's a connection. Then my wife and I were at the Bible Museum. She comes up behind me and says, uh, they're talking about your guy. And I said, what guy? He said, Alalu. And I said, where? Over there. And I go under these overhead speakers, and I hear this guy speaking Hebrew, Arabic. I don't know what language he's talking. All I hear is yada, 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 alalu, yada, 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 yada. Yada, 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 alleluia, yada, 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 So what did I see on that billboard? Exactly. I, gosh, we could talk hours, Keith. I love this subject because what you're getting into there is the significance of what a biblical theologian would experience as loan words. And so you come across words, you want to get to the... L-O-A-N as opposed to L-O-N-E. No. Well, the spelling doesn't really matter. No, like like loaning something. Yeah. Yeah, Okay. So you get to a word, you want to get to the root meaning, but it has no history in the language that you're looking at, and that's because the word has come from another place, from another language, and that applies to uh, the words that Keith is talking about, and to some really key names. Even the name Yahweh, the holy name of God, is a loan word with no history. It is a proper name from another language. And it's there that you see the bridges to previous cultures that the average preacher or theologian knows nothing about. But as soon as you realize you're looking at loan words, it means you have to go into those other ancestral narratives, those other mythologies for an insight on what we're talking about. And that's that is what Keith is drilling down into. So, bravo. You, Paul. I was a long conversation yeah. on that front. Yeah, yeah I was it's just going to make the same point. You just made it. <laughs> Anu is his half, Alalu's half brother. And yeah. Inky said that after the flood, him and Doug Marty went to the moon, stayed there for one cycle, uh, charting the heavens so they could avoid the event that caused the flood in the first place. He said at the end of that cycle, or one orbit of the Earth around the sun, he decided to name this cycle after his father, Anu. That's an interpretation. We weren't there. We don't know if they did that. (laughs) Yeah. Now, I'm going to turn into Inquisitor here because I hear this all the time. I was listening to another show on another unfortunate show. Uh, This show is not unfortunate. That one was. Uh, And somebody was making a lot of comparisons like that. I'm just leaving his name out, even though he's very well known. Because... When you take something from one language to another, you lose the context behind it unless the whole area of that language was absorbed, which is unlikely. I mean, I, I thought of a very uh, very easy, simple uh, understanding thing. If you see the word hydro attached to a bunch of other letters, what does that tell you, you know, even if someone is totally non-academic? Well, this has something to do with water right? You know, most everybody makes a connection like that. Uh, uh, But uh, that's because it's still within the common context. When it comes to God names, yes, you can drill it down to two-letter roots from languages that no one has spoken for thousands of years, and we have no idea how they were, if they had a written language, how they used it, and it goes on and on and on forever. And that business about the 
name of God. It's also true that the character of Ares, you know, the Greek version, um, was uh, known to have a battle cry. He was actually a bit different from the character of, of Mars, even though they borrowed the god, the Romans did. Uh, but he would run into battle yelling his daughter's name as, an, uh, as a sort of a, um, what do you call it, when you just sort of uh, repeat something over and over again, you know, like a, like a rally call. Ah, la, la, la. Ah, yeah. What's it called? A rallying sorry, cry. Rallying cry. Yes, as a rallying cry. I was looking for some uh, for some fusty academic word, but it, it doesn't matter. You got the idea. Uh, he would his uh, his daughter's name, Ares, in that mythic cycle from the Greeks, was uh, Ali, and he would go Ali, 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 sounding exactly like a modern day Kurdish goat herder or something. And that was his battle cry. But when you go, Allah, 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 what does that sound like? See, you can make these connections and they seem very solid, but we don't really know which one is the right thread to pull but, or um, path to go down Ron, or something. That's yes, why we Ron. need to find the libraries. Ron? No. Um, yes, Keith. Inky was the one that made up all the different languages when it came down to the Tower of Babel. When the Tower of Babel was not building a... Uh, the Tower of Babel was not the building a tower to heaven. They, Marduk was building a celestial launch site, which is a tower to heaven, if you want to look at it that way. Well, that's and, what Sitchin says. Right. And that's, so I, that's yeah, don't take this as an attack. I studied Sitchin, too, just not as well as yourself. But I did check with the academic uh, area of things, and there are just a handful, maybe by now it's a double handful, of people that can actually – decode or, um, and understand things like cuneiform writings. Hey, Paul. And he wasn't alone with Paul, translation. His, Paul, his professor Paul, and Paul, him Paul, translated yeah, it. Paul, you want to go out for a beer while they do this? No, 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 no. Well, I'm going to stop. If there's a, if there's a counterattack, that's fine. But the point, the point is that none of them had any valid arguments with Sitchin's scholarship or his, uh, or the rectitude of his translations, they were all perfectly acceptable by the rules that they followed. None of them could say differently. They just did not like his conclusions. And that's because of the difference in interpretation of a word that comes from another, not just another language, but a whole, when we say language, we think of, you know, an alphabet and phonemes, but it's more than that, you know, when it comes to hieroglyphics. It's a way it's of pictures. thinking. Yes, and it has to have a like context. To, Paul, go ahead. I'd like, I'd like to come yeah. down on Keith's side here. Um, okay. Because, yes, uh, we can have arguments about the particular interpretation uh, of words and the particular translation of words. But when it comes to Babel and the Tower of Babel, the drama of the story tells you what that thing is. And as I said earlier, I'd, I'd never heard of Sitchin when I did my research. And just reading the most widely accepted translations of the cuneiforms and reading them in parallel with the biblical story, it certainly does affirm what Keith is saying, that we are looking at some kind of a device that facilitates travel from the Earth to space stations. That's just what happens in the story. And I think what's, mm -hmm. what's fun about Sitchin is that 
historically he was the person who sort of confronted the world with the ET implications of the stories. And it mm. wasn't that they weren't known before by the academics who had worked on the cuneiforms. It's that they hadn't been, uh, the implications of it hadn't really been faced or sat with. So some of the most far-reaching mm. things that Sitchin was saying were essentially not new. What was new, he, he was saying, everybody look at this for a moment. Can we just acknowledge what we've all just said? And that space station, uh, uh, Stargate space station story is one of those moments where you, you won't find an academic to say that's not the story, that's not the drama. It's just then, well, what do you do with it? Do you think it's real? Do you think it's fable? And Sitchin was the one who said, let's just say that's what the story says, and we have to acknowledge it. Well, I agree with you on... on uh all of that. I'm not. I'm not shutting anything out. I'm just saying that uh, I'll agree with just or disagree with just the last thing you said about uh, academia. No, uh, unless you're pri- unless you're sitting in a private circumstance sharing uh, glasses of brandy, the uh, that other academic <laughs> is not going to is not going to admit that it's a credible uh, translation. He's just going to say, yeah, there's a lot of possible variables. And say so that would be an interesting story no, no, and no. things like that because it's not canon. They won't let it in. No, it's. I'm sorry. Not quite right because there are widely accepted translations that will confront any reader with the space-faring aspect of the story. You're very right that um, that might not be accepted as like a historical thing. And you're absolutely right that there's a big difference between what an academic will say in private with a glass of brandy and what they'll say for peer review. But what? But the drama of the story is actually fairly straightforward at that point. Well, what do you think the confusion of languages means? Ah, well, the view I take is is different from a lot of scholars on this because what happens and that's probably because my start point is is the bible and 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 coming at it from a background in in preaching and theology because often when people read the babel story they they will read it and they'll say okay uh prior to that moment we all spoke the same language it says that in in the Gen- beginning of genesis 11 and then after that we're speaking Italian and Spanish and French <laughs> and Greek, this, that and the other. Mm-hmm. But what, what the impact of that moment is, is that following that moment, and it's a moment of violence which extinguishes the technological capacity of a civilization. So you just have to stop and think what that might mean. That following that moment, the human beings could no longer communicate with each other. And so I believe there was a, a fundamental attack on our genus, a fundamental attack on our species, and that our ability to speak was disrupted by what happened there. There was an attack on our technology and an attack on our neurology. And there is this very odd silence in between that moment and the beginning of Genesis 12, where we're looking at the world as we know it and the character of Abraham and Sarah appear, who, I might say, are the Hebrew equivalents of Brahma and Saraswati of the Vedic tradition. So it's a new beginning for humanity in Genesis 12. 
And so there's a total break between the civilization of Genesis 11 and what we then learn moving forward from Genesis 12. So I think it was a very fundamental attack on our species that we're reading about. Okay, this goes back to the question. Hang on, Ron. This goes back to the question I asked Paul about an hour, maybe an hour and a half ago. How do we interpret this in the right context, literally or metaphorically, figuratively, symbolically, or, you know, cosmically? Because when uh, this has become one of my favorite questions, this confusion of language, the whole Babel uh, mm-hmm. moment, the, the, the catastrophe, because I agree it was cat- catastrophic. I just wonder if it was the contextless catastrophe that we all impugn to it, you know, one unified mm. culture language before, and then Italian and Esperanto and German and that kind of nonsense, okay? And I think, and this is maybe controversial, but I look at the world right now, and I think we're going through a Tower of Babel moment. We have in the United States alone about half the culture. They use the same words. They use the same symbols. They use the same everything. And they're talking exactly past each other. They are not communicating their language. They're not speaking the same language, even though they they think they are, because they have lost how to figure out truth, objective reality. They're lost in bubbles of their own creation and their ankylis. They're drifting around and they're not communicating. And if that goes on much longer and much deeper, civilization, technological civilization on Earth will collapse and we will lose billions of people and the fragmented survivors will rise up out of the mud and they'll start all over with something that will mirror someday down the line, thousands of years from now, but it will not be what we have now. And I think we're at that breakpoint moment. And I'm thinking it's partly due to this fundamental change in the physics, this shattering breakpoint we're coming toward at warp nine, which is being intimated by a number of different sources. And so I look at it now very differently than literally. I'm looking at it almost archetypally because I see people in my own family, my neighbors who are talking to me in English, and we literally cannot communicate. I think that's really profound what you just said, Richard. I think that's absolutely right, is exactly what we are seeing in the present day. And what's interesting is that I think if you sat um, a poet or a preacher down in front of the Babel text, they might look at that text and stand up and preach exactly what you've just said. Because sometimes you have a story that's been told many times over. We know, for instance, or at least there's a very broad scholarly consensus that the current form of the Hebrew scriptures took shape in about the 6th century BCE when the whole thing was reworked to um, provide a unified 
theology of monotheism. And that meant that all the old stories were retold. And each time there's a retelling uh, of a story, there can be new information and interpretation layered over the top. And so that's why what I'm saying is not a rebuttal of what Keith is saying uh, just now or any different to what you're saying, that all those meanings can be layered into a single text, that there is a takeaway for the present day from a story about the past. And I think what you just said about people being brought to a place where we can talk but we can't understand each other is very, very profound. And I think in a way... (laughs) even that could be a device used by powers to make us more governable over because in a or, way... See, my model is it's the physics itself and there may be opportunists, but it's really the cycle I, of the physics, yes, which is the processional so cycle. In. And we get into the uh, uh, Vedas and we get into the uh, Yuga cycles. Kali-Yugas. Yeah, exactly. And so the fundamental driver is this physics and we think we're communicating and we're not communicating at all. And it's yeah, frightening. It's, right. it's, it's horrifying because unless something happens different, which is why I think our communications project was somebody outside the system that's trying to tell us, look to your roots, look to your ancient history, your own history, which is what these ETs, hyperdimensionals, dead people, whoever we're talking to, they're pointing us directly back at our own ancient sacred structures and the math and the physics encoded in yeah. them and what they used to be able to do. Well, when they say that to you, Richard, they're yeah. talking to the right person because that, that parallels the journey you've made where you didn't leap into the world of ufology. You look to the past. What are the artifacts from the past? And do they inform us as to the human condition? Mm. And me very similarly where I've looked to the ancestral narratives of the past and say, do they tell us who we are and how to live in this cosmos? You see so why I had to have you on tonight? I mean, I just yes, had to have you on tonight. <laughs> so that message is, is music to my ears, and I think it's very true. Okay, let me ask another dumb question. Um, going back to something Keith said, which was not dumb, was very, very interesting, about the, the towers. If you interpret the Tower of Babel story literally as a technological skyscraper, a tower, and you know, in, in, in some interpretation, a launch tower for a rocket, that kind of thing. That's the Sitchin perspective. But what if you look at tower, in other words, how narrowly in ancient human history has the concept of tower been defined? Is it a tall, thin, minaret-type spire, or is it like a pyramid, like Giza, with a flat place on top to stand, but it's basically an elevated architectural structure? Because it makes a difference in the physics, in the, the pyramids on Earth, I can now say with certainty, are huge, solid-state, hyperdimensional torsion field machines. And if the machines for for manipulating the field were what someone tried to stop, they took away our ability to create, I'm going to use a cliche here, stargates, the ability to beam from 
earth to some other place. In other words, exactly. they, they cut off at the knees the ability with massive architecture to get off earth. But did it have to be a Sitchin-esque kind of rocket? And my answer is uh, no. And uh, we are and, at and the bottom of the hour. Ah, so everybody hold it there. Um, gosh, I kind of wish this could go on for another two or three hours because I have a feeling we're getting close to something important, something interesting, something critical to what we should be talking about in terms of our current enterprise mission experiments in extraterrestrial communications. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. other side of midnight.com talk radio with pictures on demand liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non-linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought join club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Listen while you travel or as an environment for your endeavors. $0.08 cents an episode, $0.02.5 cents per hour of content. The other side of midnight.com. Welcome back, everyone. Last half hour to go on this Sunday night edition of The Other Side of Midnight, grading now in the land of Champion into Monday morning, another Monday in January, with lots and lots of stuff happening, both in the mainstream, at the fringe, at the extraordinary levels of the counterculture, at the levels of politics, at the levels of reality themselves. My guests this morning, Paul Wallace and Ron Gerbrun, and Keith Morgan has actively joined the conversation because he's probably the best read Sitchin scholar that we have here. So where should we pick up? Paul, where, where, where do you think we should, what should we be asking next about not only our experiments, but 
kind of where we're poised as a culture, which I believe is, you know, kind of like on the edge of forever? I think it segues from what we were just talking about, actually, with, with the Tower of Babel. And you were asking if it had to be a tower, you know, a tall, thin thing. I think sometimes we, we think of it that way because of the way we've translated reaching to the heavens. But it doesn't have to be a tall, thin thing at all. I mean, the Tower of London isn't a tall, thin thing. But the word Babel itself means a gateway for the powerful ones or a gateway to the powerful ones. And it reinforces that concept that this is a technology ah. uh, like a stargate, what we call a stargate. And the reason mm. I think that's a nice place to pick up is because I do think contact is very important for the human race moving forward. As I said earlier, I think if we sit twiddling our thumbs waiting for the powers to uh, come clean and tell us what's what, that really is going to be a long wait when I believe we are already in contact with at least portions of the Intergalactic Federation who are willing to communicate with ordinary human beings. And I think that's what we should be pushing forward. So I'm really affirming uh, your project, Richard. I think that is really a very good way to go, that we democratize the whole process. It's always been the case that we've had neighbors and helpers willing to communicate with us. And I think we ordinary folks should be putting that to work. Well, I'm going to be absolutely shameless and ask you right here in front of 193 countries, do you want to join the team? <laughs> I would be very interested in joining the team. Super. That means you have to analyze data. You've got to delve back into this historical memory and you've got to bring, like David has brought the numbers, you need to bring the other interpretations of these mythologies yeah. because one of the amazing things, remember, the family model is a model. It's a theory. Until you broadcast like we did to the moon on the night of the 18th of December, and what we got back were a string of numbers that turned out to be a code directing us directly to Stonehenge. Yes. So what we're going to do on February 4th with a team of people all over the world, we were looking for a person to do a sacred site like Ayers Rock in Australia, <clears throat> hint, hint, imposition, imposition, mm -hmm. was to have someone in Australia take one of these handheld radios that appear to be able to communicate with somebody out there and see what happens if when Maria Wheatley, who is our anthropologist, who's going to be in the middle of Stonehenge transmitting at 8 o'clock in the morning on the 4th, she gets one hour. And it cost her 100 pounds from English heritage to literally buy that one hour to do experiments. And last night in a Skype call, we went over some protocols, and we're going to go into that in more detail this coming Saturday. So if you want to come back on Saturday next, you know, uh, six days from now, and be part of the planning of how we organize the global sacred site participation at the democratic level, and I don't mean that with a capital D, um, how far are you from Ayers Rock? Or is there another um, uh, native uh, aboriginal cultural place that is so sacred in their traditions that it's easier to get to and it will be just as meaningful? There are places easy to get to, but there are activities and ceremonies that have been happening around Ayers Rock lately that relate to exactly oh. what we're talking about. And so I will hook you up 
with Stephen and Evan Strong, who are researchers here in Australia. They are original Australians themselves. They love all the subjects we've been talking about, but they are also very interested in this level of contact and communication in the context of Uluru. So I will hook you guys up and we'll see what might come of that connection. Very interesting. Awesome. I'm, I'm, yeah, who was that? That was me. Okay, Ron, go ahead. No, that's Ron. I just said awesome. Yeah. Oh, okay. See, I'm I of the screaming. same opinion you are, Paul, that we need something outside the nursery, which is so awesome and captivating and mind-boggling that it makes all us primitive people down here go, oh, and take a deep breath and pause, which is why I pursued the whole extraterrestrial archaeology thing for decade after decade, because I felt that would be the lever that would unify us as a human species against an unknown. The unknown being, who the hell are we really and what are we all doing in this place? Now that we've got somebody in an active conversation, and it appears to be very prime directive oriented. In other words, they're not intruding. They're providing us with information that we have to connect to our own history, our own heritage, our own identity, but we make the choice if we want to do that. So to me, yes. it, it has a feeling of good guys as opposed to, you know, invaders from Mars, that nonsense. Yes, uh, I like the sound of that because it is telling us to know who we are. It's mm -hmm. not someone coming to overpower us yep. or to yep. tell us what's what. Yep. And it's very democratic. It, 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 anybody with these radios can play. And if we put them at the right places, I have a feeling that we might, with this experiment on the force, light up a global network, uh, a la you know, my friend Carl Monk, because he found mathematically decades ago that they're all connected mathematically and it was with the sacred architecture and you know, key frequencies and key geometry and all that. If we can, regardless of the local environment, communicate at this torsion field hyperdimensional level, gosh knows what could happen in a positive sense. Absolutely. I mean, maybe this network was created for exactly this moment to do exactly this thing because we're in such deep doo-doo. I Look, I can certainly believe that. And when I think of the state we're in, which you were reflecting on earlier, Richard, saying that we, we are losing the ability to communicate with each other. And when I look at the issues that are pressing upon uh, societies here in Australia, in the States, I often feel less hopeful looking to our political leadership and more hopeful thinking that we've got others, other family from a little further beyond who might have an interest in nurturing us as a species. And mm. I think that is the case. Mm. By the way, we've got a few minutes here. We've got 20 minutes. So if anybody out there wants to join the conversation, if they happen to live near a sacred site and want to get hold of us and be part of this experiment, uh, call 917-889-8802. That's our, our blog talk connect line. 917-889-8802. And uh, we'll put you on the air if you, you know, give us enough time to kind of, you know, include you in the conversation. You were going to say, Ron. Uh, I, it slipped my mind uh, just now. <laughs> okay. 
It was, I, a, rea- it was a reaction to I'm right Keith, in there. That, Keith, oh, that'll you? get me started yeah. again. Can I clarify something yeah, about sure, the sure. power? Yeah, go you, ahead. You were looking at it a different way. Um, Marduk was going to put humans in charge of the celestial launch site. The celestial launch sites were where they launched their craft into space to go back to their planet. Uh, Gobekli Tepe, I'm pretty sure, was a celestial launch site. The temple in front of the Sphinx, celestial launch site. And Stonehenge, celestial launch site. But his uncle Enlil said that if we give them this, there'll be nothing they will not ask for. And he sent his people to destroy the launch site. And then they scattered to humans around the world. And Enlil had Inky come up with the languages that they imposed on all the different groups. That's the Tower of Babel from the story that Inky says, but Inky doesn't say, oh, this is the Tower of Babel. He just tells the story. The pieces all fall into place once you read it. So that, I just wanted to clarify that. Mm, okay. Oh, I remembered what I was going to add. Telepathy. Yes. See, I think that the I think that the uh, confounding of the languages, which is the part that uh, gets to me the most. I mean, in terms of archaeo engineering research, the uh, uh, Sumerians were not very good at building multi building multi story buildings. They found several that they made they, they can't go they couldn't get above three stories because they couldn't figure out how to you know brace the inner supports so that it wouldn't collapse on itself. And they used a lot of mud bricks. Uh, and that sounds pretty primitive, but it was just you have to use what you yeah, have. Wait, 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 wait. Run, run. I'm, I'm, I'm going to be rude and interrupt you. You're assuming, Please. and Paul, ask me, uh, I mean, you know, check me if I'm wrong. <clears throat> You're assuming these mythologies originated with the Sumerians. My model is no, no. that they're much, much, much older. They were preserved, and the Sumerians produced the most ancient recorded references yes, to versions yeah telling i agree they adopted older material yes absolutely definitely yeah so it's uh, no i have no problem there i just put in terms of confusing all the languages uh there's no you, you can you can read an account without context which it wouldn't be in a you know in a mythologically or a, a mythos I, I don't want it to sound like i think they're fairy tales uh uh, or a folkloric place. You know, they can say people came from all over to help do this or that or the other thing, but you don't know how many languages that involved or anything else. And it was it's very specific, specific enough that even up at the time when King when the King James scholars were translating uh the Bible, you still ended up with a similar uh presentation of it. That was the implication. They couldn't communicate with one another before. And I think when the physics changed, as in your model, Richard, that uh, the change that happened to people was that we lost a certain telepathic sensitivity we used to have. And uh, I could go down I, a rabbit hole with... No, no, I totally ahead, buy that. I'm, now, let me tell you I'm something... I'm that as well. Okay, Paul, hang on. I, let me tell you what okay. something Maria yeah. told me last night, which she'll huh. tell all of us next weekend. Remember, she's a dowser and she measures these energies as as part of her profession. She says the energies of the British sacred sites is increasing dramatically, dramatically, wow. which, of course, our model says it should be happening along concurrent with all these social cultural changes that we're seeing that are heading us in the wrong direction. And let me make one clarification point about the Sumerians. 
The reason I, <clears throat> before I had to drink some water, uh, wanted to intrude on that point was if the Sumerians yeah. merely preserved <clears throat> a much more ancient storyline, their level of architectural expertise, mud bricks or not, is totally irrelevant. The folks that built the tower when the physics changed and the language was confused are of a much, much, much more ancient era in this model than the Sumerians. Oh, I agree. Yeah, you misconstrued that. I was just saying that was one of the things that is so wrong that it indicates that the answer lies elsewhere, which, i.e., in an older basic civilization. That's all. Okay, Paul, it is your turn. I mean, you are the guest. Come on. I, <laughs> I wanted to pick up. On well, I like this guy. There's a really interesting layer to the story that, that Ron referenced, which is the aspect of telepathy. Um, if you go to the Mesoamerican stories of origins that come from out of the Toltec, Olmec, Aztec, and Mayan peoples, there's a story of the engineering of our ancestors in stages, and it's always done in stages in, in these ancient narratives. And it reaches a point where the chief genetic engineer, Quetzalcoatl, has engineered a version of Homo sapiens that's a little bit more developed than we are. And when it describes how more developed, the implication is that these humans had higher cognitive abilities, specifically better telepathic connection, better precognition, better... Um, ability to anticipate the future. Um, this links with uh, better remote viewing, advantages um, and healing, all those kinds of things. And to have a being that intelligent, as the story goes, was unhelpful to those who would come to do the engineering. They didn't want humans that clever. They just wanted them smart enough to work and bring them their food. And so they had to do something to dumb the people down. And so what that means is that our, our previous state was one in which... There's a terrible noise. Ron, are you, are you baking bread or something? Because it's awful. I'm not making any noise whatsoever. I, it's, it sounds garbled to me, too. It sounds like somebody's rubbing the mic across the cat's fur backwards. Mm, nope, I'll wear the headset. I, I'm... I'm not rubbing my mic against my cat. That's so. weird. That's no, I was weird. muted. Oh, well, we have, we have a visitor. Uh, no, but, unknown uh, visitor, yes. Fascinating. So a better telepathic connection was something we had in the past, and then it was taken away. And in the, in the Mayan story, it's done by spraying a vapor over human populations in order to brain damage them, essentially, so that uh, mm. we're less smart. Oh. We are to our five physical senses and for anything beyond that we have to rely on authority to tell us and those who governed us found that more workable now when you read a story like that you immediately think what is that the 21st century mm -hmm. we're being told about or is it the deep past but it's just a nice thing to know that our previous state was one where we had better telepathic connection and I think I actually think that's part of our animal heritage on planet earth because I think our pets sometimes have better telepathic connection than we do. And I do think it's something that we can work on and re-enhance. I do think we can be more conscious and more intelligent. <clears> in is, is, this, is this the point, guys, where I tell him about the uh, 
mice? Uh, <laughs> everybody grunts. Uh, could I, I ask? Could I ask? Could I ask, could I ask you Ron. a question first? Yeah, uh, Doug. Uh, the, here's a rabbit hole. I was going to introduce Ingo Swan, but that that would take too much. But uh, are you familiar with Ingo Swan's oh, research? Yes, the remote viewer. Yes. Right, and he also he also detailed three types of telepathy, which we will not discuss now because it, it's they okay. you know, require that. But I, I found, yeah, I reached the same conclusion before I read his stuff. So I said, okay, therefore he's probably right. But uh, my ego aside, um, the um, what do you think of the Sasquatch? Well, the I have Sasquatch, personally seen I, one. I don't hang around with the tree huggers up north in Northern California or anything. But it's, so I believe they're out there. But they they seem to have a telepathic edge. And where they're where are they yeah. they from? And are very very bashful. Well, you know, uh, I had no yeah. grid for the Sasquatch in my thinking or theology until I read the Mayan story of human origins, because in the Mayan story, in the Popol Vuh, it says that we, Homo sapiens sapiens, are the um, descendants of primates, and that there are other ape-like creatures that live in the forest who are also their descendants. We're not natural descendants. We're all part of a series of experiments. And so as soon as I read that, my ears pricked up because first of all, the ancient Mayans were connecting us with primates and apes you know, centuries before Darwin. And they weren't saying we were descended from apes. They were saying we were descended from primates and that other ape-like creatures were as well. So when I read that, I thought, hold on, ape-like creatures that live in the forest, part of the same experiment as us. And it took me to Sasquatch, to the Yeren, to the Moihau, and to the Australian Yowie. And so I do think they, we are part of each other's story. <clears throat> Paul, and having learned that... We, yes, don't, we don't have a lot of time. We've got about nine minutes in, in the show. It's amazing. We're, we must all, all do right. this again. Uh, are you aware of the closest non-primate genetic relative to Homo sapiens? Um, tell me something technical. Well, genetically. <laughs> all right. Yeah, you'll have to tell me. Cat. We only have nine minutes. Oh, I can believe that. I'm very close to my cats. That makes perfect sense. And well, cats and dogs because they're both very related. But yeah. And that gets back to all the cat imagery in the artwork on Mars, all the cat imagery in rulers on Earth. I'm thinking British lions. I'm thinking sphinxes. You you begin to see a trend curve here? Of course. And if if panspermia is your start point, it's not so shocking that we might be closely related or that there might be other beings who are more like cats who are the dominant species in other places or specific genetic crossing of the lines to get a resultant result true all right now let me go back to a question we asked what days ago seems like days ago why did they choose to make humans slaves garden of eden that kind of thing Forbid them knowledge, keep them down on the farm, have them produce food, et cetera, et cetera. Not, you know, follow certain rules, not as opposed to AI, robots, technology, 
machines, okay? That's a very good question. I well, mean, would you like to hear a very good answer? Well, I was going to offer one, but no, go no, no, go, you go first. <laughs> go ahead. Well, I, I was just going to say maybe it's not not so strange uh, a scenario since we are technological species, and yet we employ animals all the time to work for us. Yeah, but that's only because we have to do it at the moment. It's like we have to why we why we kill animals as opposed to eating beyond meat. Eventually, technology will supplant all of that. What's the well, reason? Well, there are places where an ox is still preferable to a tractor, for instance. Have I'm not talking tractors. I'm talking. Have you seen this six-legged animal coming out of that firm in Boston that can climb mountains and is like a pack dog? And you know that's primitive compared to what we'll eventually get. In other words, at some point, technology just will rule the roost. So why would you go to living, conscious beings to be your beast of burden? Answer. Because you're a decadent, falling apart culture. You're refugees. The technology that you work with and haven't a clue how it works, when it stops running, you need to turn to biology, to life forms, to beings that are smart enough to carry out a task, but not smart enough to kill you. I, I'm with you there, Richard, and I think sometimes when we read these ancient stories, we think that if they had technology that could get them to travel subspace, so to speak, and get them to our planet, then they must have known everything. But just because they had that technology doesn't mean they had every technology. Do you remember, just because they had that technology do you, do you, doesn't mean they you, were superior in every way. Do you remember a wonderful uh, short story <clears throat> which eventually turned into Arthur's novel, The City and the Stars, called... The machine stops where he has this kid in this hive-like community, like a huge arcology where everybody is waited on. All technology provides everything until one day it doesn't. In other words, this culture knew nothing about how their environment worked. We're frankly very close there now. I mean, if, yes. if, if, if we had something really happen to our technology, we would revert instantly to 200 years ago, if not earlier. Instantly. Yes, yes, I agree. Uh, we do seem somewhat similar, don't we? Fragile, incredibly fragile. So I've been looking at refugees from Mars. I mean, the model, the idea. They came here because they had to come here. And when they came here, it had to do with the physics, the resonances, you know, you can't go between planets any old time and set up a colony because you'll die. And that's part of an extended model that will develop, you know, in future programs and maybe even in the book. The point is that when you arrive and have all this stuff doing everything for you and know nothing about how it works because you've been living on it for so long, when it no longer works, when it breaks down, that's when you become, quote, the primitives and we find stone tools, stone knives, and bearskins to quote. Well, you could also quote Einstein. <laughs> you know, Which he is? said World War Three will be fought with nuclear weapons. World War Four will be sticks and stones. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yes. So there's either okay, way, so you know, refugees of war. We got about four minutes, so uh, Paul, you have the floor. Well, the place I've come to from all my wanderings in paleo contact is really to do with our potential as a species. 
I believe we're so much more than a slave species. I think we can be more conscious than we are, more intelligent than we are. And the cultures that curated the ancient stories of contact are all cultures that had mystical and shamanic practices to upgrade our consciousness and our thinking. And that's the kind of appetite I've come away with. By the time I get to the end of Escaping from Eden and the Scars of Eden, I am appetitious to go and sit at the feet of our indigenous leaders and say, well, can you tell me some of those secrets? And this year, the next book in the series Echoes of Eden, that's exactly where it goes to our traditions of initiation that carry the answers to some of those deep questions of human potential. You're definitely on a roll with Eden. By the way, as, as, as a loan word, I, I prefer a borrowed word as opposed to loan because loan sounds like a, you know, a banking thingy. As a borrowed, that next time. As a borrowed term, time. what did Eden mean? Oh, well, it, it could be translated as a garden, but when you read the drama of the stories, it's a safe enclosed zone where the experiments were done. And that's really how I came to the title for Escaping from Eden. It was a zoo. It was a zoo. Oh, my God, it was the San Diego Zoo. (laughs) You could put it that way. Wow. Hey, I really, you know, I wish we had another hour because this is amazing. And I will invite you back next weekend to join Maria and the rest of the team. And we'll talk about sacred sites and communicating and all that. But, I mean, this is absolutely amazing that uh, our, our, our lines of research and our directions seem to be moving in stunning parallel patterns. So It is amazing. To be continued. My guest this morning has been Paul Wallace, who is an international author. He is a former um, archdeacon of the Anglican Church. And he is definitely a researcher into paleo contact, which includes the idea that maybe some of the folks upstairs that the humans have been interacting with for millennia, if not longer, are indeed ancient family. Well, until next Saturday and Sunday, remember, third star on the left, straight until morning. Good night, everyone. Stay safe out there. And we are clear.